looked over at the doctor for an answer. The silver-haired old man in the Edwardian frock coat seemed oddly out of place in the futuristic control chamber. His blue-veined hands flitted expertly over the controls and dials of the six-sided console as he tried to identify the source of the problem. As he did so, his companions, Ian, Barbara and Susan, joined him and peered over his shoulders. To their dismay, they saw that, one by one, the lights on the TARDIS console were going out. The doctor slammed his fist on the control panel in frustration. Confounded, he said. Barbara asked him what the problem was. It was a fuel leak, he told her, and Ian wondered whether it was serious. Of course it's serious. We might be stranded here for years, the doctor exploded angrily. But where are we, Grandfather? How should I know? All the TARDIS instruments feed on the same fuel source. He glanced down at one of the few dials on the control panel which was still working. Judging by this, I'd say we're on Earth, and sometime in the past. Shh. What is it? What is that sound? It was music, the doctor told her. What else could it be? And it's not Beethoven. You don't think... You don't think we're dead, do you? Can't you hear the music, Grandfather? Of course I can hear the music, child. I'm not deaf. I should imagine even the deaf could hear it. It's the most heavenly sound I've heard. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. What do you mean, Susan? Well, maybe it is the real heavenly sound. Maybe we've all died and gone to heaven. How on earth could we go to heaven, child? I don't even know the way. Despite herself, Susan laughed, and Barbara joined in. The doctor seemed at odds to know what they thought was so funny. You, doctor, knowing the way to heaven. I will one day, my boy, when this frail old body is finally summoned by the Almighty, he said. Barbara smiled. Well, until that time, I suggest that we go outside and take a look. Precisely my intention as well, Miss Wright, the doctor replied and operated the door mechanism. If we are indeed in heaven, then I assure you we're in very good hands, he said, and led the way out through the wide double doors. The police telephone box had landed in what appeared to be a wooded glade full of the most exotic and beautiful plants and flowers they'd ever seen. Above them the sun shone in a brilliantly blue and cloudless sky, and a light breeze blew through the trees. This was paradise, Barbara said. 
Then we are dead. The doctor wagged a reproving finger at her and told his granddaughter not to be so childish. Well, if we're not dead, then where are we? <laughs> Probably in a film set. I wouldn't be surprised if Mantovani wasn't conducting that heavenly orchestra and some Hollywood mogul is directing a biblical epic. What's your guess, Barbara? Barbara looked around and shrugged. The garden stretched for as far as the eye could see and consisted of a series of raised terraces and galleries planted with trees and flowers of every species and colour imaginable. Ian asked the doctor for his opinion. The doctor ignored him. He was more interested in listening to the heavenly music. It was all around them, he remarked, which meant that it could come from only one place. It was coming from the plants themselves. <laughs> plants, Grandfather? How can they be playing music? The doctor bent down and examined a bushy flower. A few thin wires attached its stalk to that of a neighbouring flower. The doctor plucked at one of the wires. They're like piano or lyre chords. And they're responsible for all this music. Barbara plucked at one of the chords. Each of the chords produced a separate sound, she said, and plucked another. The plants were the musicians of this world, the doctor told him. But how can they be playing melodies, and in so many octaves? It was very simple, the doctor said. There was a light breeze which rustled the leaves, and the leaves in turn plucked at the chords. And because each chord was specially placed, that was how the melody was produced, Barbara realised. The doctor agreed. It was really most ingenious, and he would like to meet the people who designed such a wonder. So that I can hear a myriad nightingales, childhood lullabies, take me into your garden, O Babylon, so that I no longer fear the arid desert plains, the scavenging war cries, cradle me in your arms, O Babylon. I didn't know you were a poet, Mr Chesterton. I'm <laughs> not... That's an old Persian poem, and I think I know where we are. Where? In Babylon. <gasps> and so this must be... The Hanging Gardens of Babylon. <gasps> One of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Shh! Can you hear? On the terrace below, a parade of beautiful women in colourful robes passed by. The king is here! The king is here! they sang. Each one of them carried before her a silken cushion, and on each cushion there lay a beautiful gift, fashioned out of either gold or silver. Let's follow them, Grandfather! Let's go and meet the king! Before the doctor could warn his granddaughter to be careful, Susan had rushed off down the steps leading to the lower terrace. With a resigned shrug of his shoulders, the doctor stomped off after her, followed by Ian and Barbara. In another part of the hanging gardens, in a secluded arbour hidden beneath a canopy of flowers, four men sat around a table drinking wine. Sir Lucas was a scar-faced giant of a man in his late thirties, wearing the leather and bronze body armour of a general of the Greek army. He sipped thoughtfully 
as he regarded each of his companions uneasily. Beside him was Glaucius, a weather-beaten, stocky, elderly man, dressed in a well-fashioned tunic which, however, could not conceal his ever-widening girth. Aeolus was a young man, no more than twenty, who would have been attractive were his cheeks not already flushed with years of ill-living. On his head he wore a crown of laurels, indicating that he was a priest of the great god Apollo. The final member of the group was Antipater, a tall, wiry man of more than seventy years with a hard and ambitious face. The medallion he wore around his neck showed to the world that he was a politician and a trusted adviser to the king. He took a final draught of wine and addressed his companions. I will be brief, gentlemen. It has been thirteen years since we last breathed the mountain airs of our beloved land. Thirteen years since we have wielded a sword and hammered our footprints on the Earth's geography, and I think that now it is time to go back. Seleucus scoffed. That might be what Antipater thought, he said, but it was not the view of the king. There was not one Greek in the whole of Babylon who would not welcome a return to his homeland, Antipater claimed. There was not one Greek who did not cry like a fatherless child at the very mention of Thessaly and the Macedon coast by the Aegean Sea. What Antipater said was true, Seleucus agreed, but pointed out that the army would never desert their king. It was because they believed him to be a god, Glaucius said. Then that is what must be changed. If the army will not desert the king, then the king must be made to desert the army. Antipater declared, not for one moment taking his eyes off Seleucus. Glaucius and Aeolus nodded their agreement. Seleucus asked Antipater to continue. The god, the king, must die before the dust of marching soldiers settles on Babylon. Then, and only then, can we all pursue a life of our own preferences, he told them. That was treason, Seleucus said, and stood up to leave. Antipater, however, told him to stay. The old man reminded him that not so long ago, Seleucus had tried to inveigle his way into the order of succession with an eye on the king's death. That had been because the king had been badly wounded, Seleucus protested. But he was now intrigued and stayed to hear what Antipater had to say. Under normal circumstances, I would have advocated the death of the king. But at this stage, that is impractical. For should he die today, then we would gain nothing. The throne would go to one of his three generals, Antipater pointed out. Was Antipater suggesting that they kill the king and his generals? Seleucus asked. Aeolus was also concerned. That was too much to ask, he said. They could succeed in one murder, the murder of the king, but how could they be sure they would not fail in the others? That was his problem, not theirs. Antipater said. He had plans for four deaths, he told them, and drew from out the folds of his tunic four heavy medallions. I have here four medallions just forged by the royal armourer on the king's orders. They are medallions of succession. One is that of the king, and the others the king's nominees for the throne. Antipater dangled the medallions before them, and then, one by one, dropped them to the ground. 
These are our victims, gentlemen. Clytus, third in succession. Calanus, second in succession. Hephaestion, first in succession. And finally, the king. This was madness, Sir Lucas said. He stood up to leave again, when Antipater pulled out a fifth medallion. He dangled it before Sir Lucas. I took the precaution of ordering a fifth medallion of succession, Antipater told him, and threw the medallion at Sir Lucas's feet. This one is yours, Sir Lucas. When Clytus, Calanus, and Hephaestion, and the king are no longer with us. Then all you have to do is show this medallion to the Tribunal of Generals and the throne will be yours. Sir Lucas looked down uncertainly at the medallion and then back up at Antipater, who smiled seductively at him. Do you not want to rule the world, Nicator Sir Lucas? Do you not want your name whispered from Athens to the banks of the Indus, hear the bards singing your fame for posterity, and the cities minting your coins, the armies carrying your banners, and the warriors piercing the clouds with your name? Do you not want all of that, Sir Lucas? Sir Lucas looked long and hard at Antipater, who returned and held his look. He would think about it, he told him, and knelt down to pick up the medallion. Yes, you'd think about it, while Glaucius, Iolus and I carry on with the dirty work, Antipater said scornfully. He snatched the medallion away from Sir Lucas. He'd look after it until Sir Lucas had reached his decision, he told the soldier. Then, and only then, would the medallion be his. After Sir Lucas had left the arbour, Glaucius asked Antipater whether he thought what he had done had been wise. Sir Lucas might very well denounce them to the king, he said. Then they would denounce him back, Antipater replied, and reminded them that Sir Lucas had once before tried to force the king to name him as one of his successors. Besides, no one would take his word against theirs. Was Antipater really serious about setting Seleucus up as king? Aeolus asked. Antipater laughed. Seleucus would be nothing more than a figurehead, he said. All they wanted was the treasures of the empire, which they would acquire by blackmailing Seleucus. Now Antipater reminded his two companions, they had four deaths to prepare. Glaucius was the camp physician and Iolus, the priest of Apollo. Antipater himself was the king's advisor and well-connected with the throne room. Between them, they should be able to devise something, he said. Iolus <laughs> laughed. Soon Babylon would become a city of funeral pyres, he said, and rubbed his hands with glee. Glaucius grinned sadistically at the thought and asked who should be their first victim. They would work their way up to the king, Antipater decided. But first, I think I should prepare the terrain. Iolus, go and prophesy something dreadful, will you? (laughs) (laughs) 
Susan had followed the singing women out of the hanging gardens, down a wide processional way, and up to the great city walls of Babylon itself. The crenellated walls of the city towered a hundred feet high, and were built of bricks the colour of lapis lazuli. Huge bronze-plated doors of cedar formed the entrance to Babylon, which was guarded by bronze statues of bulls and dragons. The doctor, Ian and Barbara finally caught up with Susan and looked in the direction she was pointing. Susan was not, however, looking at the splendid gate itself, but at the plains which lay beyond it, outside the city walls. Hundreds of tents stretched out as far as the eye could see, and it was to here that the women were making their way. In the distance, they could see, waiting to greet them, the king, seated on a throne and attended by four men in uniform. As the women approached the king, they each knelt before him and laid their gifts at his feet. Barbara looked at the gate. Of course, this must be the Ishtar gate, she realised. The Ishtar gate? What do you mean, Barbara? The army was encamped outside the city gates, the history teacher told her companions. Like Rome, Babylon was a holy city and few armies ever camped within its walls. The gate, she said, was built in honour of Ishtar, who ruled over the world of love and the world of war, and it represented the border to the goddess's two domains. When someone crossed the gate into the Hanging Gardens and into Babylon, they left behind the world of war and entered Ishtar's other domain of love and peace. And those who came out of Babylon through the gate left peace behind and went to war, Barbara said. Within Babylon all was law and order. Outside there was nothing but chaos. By now the doctor had lost interest in Barbara's impromptu history lesson and was concerned with something much more interesting. There was a curious smell in the air and he went off to see where it was coming from. It smells familiar. I wonder what it is. Hey, Grandfather, wait for us. The smell was coming from a muddy patch of earth, not far away from the encampment. Iolas was squatted over a sacrificial lamb and was rubbing the mud into the dead animal's fleece. His eyes were closed, and he seemed to be in a trance. The smell was stronger here, and the doctor and Ian realised that it smelt of petrol. It was coming from the mud, which Iolus was rubbing in the animal. The doctor tapped Iolus on the shoulder, and the prophet's eyes popped open to see who was disturbing his trance. The doctor tut-tutted. That was no way to cook a good piece of lamb, he said. And if Iolus rubbed the oil on the animal, all that would happen would be the meat would be charred. Grandfather, what are you doing? He's teaching the fellow how to cook. <laughs> the doctor was now busy making a small mound on the ground, all the while telling Iolus of the best way to cook the beast. Iolus looked at the doctor as though he was mad. Oh, come on and help me light this thing, Chesterton. Have you got any matches? The doctor asked, and indicated the lamb, which he had placed on a makeshift spit made from some tree branches. Iolus continued to look goggle-eyed and speechless at the doctor. Ian took a box of matches out of his pocket and bent down to light the fire. Suddenly a spear whistled through the air and landed in the ground between the doctor and Ian. 
the doctor and his companion turned to see who had thrown the spear. A man in his early thirties, handsome and clean-shaven, with long blonde hair, was standing before them. He wore a soldier's breastplate of bronze and a long white cloak was thrown over his shoulders. He was accompanied by four others, dressed as generals and wearing elaborate plumed helmets. Each of them wielded a short spear, which they aimed menacingly at the doctor and his friends. The man who had thrown the spear wore a half-amused expression on his face, which was tanned by the sun. Susan noticed that, curiously, one of his eyes seemed to be blue and the other brown. He strode up to them. You must not disturb Apollo's priest, strangers. Apollo's priest? The newcomer indicated Iolus, who was still squatting on the ground. He had closed his eyes again and was mumbling some words under his breath and seemed once more to be back in some sort of trance. My good friend Iolus there. If you break his trance, who knows what countless nightmares might ooze out of his frail body to ensnare us poor mortals. Oh, he's prophesying, is he? That is the general idea. What else should he do, considering that he is a priest? <laughs> we thought he was cooking. Ha! Cooking? Young maiden, you may be right, despite your innocence. After all, prophets do tend to cook up dreams and dish out terrifying interpretations. <laughs> the doctor chuckled and drew the man's attention to his four colleagues, who were still all wielding their spears. Oh, I do apologise. He went over to his men, who laid down their arms. As he did, Iolus started to chant in a loud and portentous voice. I think he's trying to say something. He's always trying to say something, and he always does. Iolus suddenly opened his eyes and cried out in a bellowing voice. Hearken to my words, O king, for the archer god Phoebus Apollo has spoken to me his trusted servant. Then speak his words. The king must not linger by Babylon, for over Babylon lies a four-headed tragedy. Look not to the city. Hear not the dewy harmonies of the gardens, lest four-headed misfortune traps you within its web of evil. Beware. Well, my friend, you will please tell Phoebus Apollo that the king and his companions have warred in the east and have rest. Congratulations, young man. You've just shown a great deal of common sense, said the doctor. He nodded over to Iolus, who gave him a murderous look. That fool there has been talking a whole lot of balderdash. Four-headed misfortune, indeed. The man's a fool. He should be locked up. Stranger, you may not be from these parts, and you may be ignorant of our customs, but I do not encourage insults to any of my men. Be warned. Oh, he didn't mean any harm. Of course he didn't. It's probably the heat. Tell him you meant no harm, Grandfather. Has the reverend old man a tongue of his own? Let him speak, if he has anything to say. Barbara urged the doctor to apologise, but he had decided to sulk instead. He said his piece, he replied stubbornly, and he stood by every word of it. Poor Iolus seemed to be deranged. Do you not then believe in prophecy, stranger? The doctor snorted. He'd had faith in the meteorological bureau once, he said. And look where that had got him. And besides, he continued, wasn't there a saying? Prophets are best who make the truest guess. 
That is no saying. That is a quotation from the great dramatist Euripides. So you say that I must ignore those who guess. <laughs> well, it is sure to displease my friend Iolus, but I agree with you. You must hearken to my words, O king. Do not stay by Babylon, Iolus declaimed once again. Let me be the judge of that, Iolus. Now, reverend old man, I would be most honoured if you and your companions would allow me to be your host. But, sire, I have yet to interpret four omens, Iolus cried out. Later, Iolus, later. The young man led the doctor and his friends away from Iolus, who glared evilly after them. He introduced them to the four generals who had accompanied him, and, as he did so, they removed their plumed helmets. The first of these was Hephaestion, a quietly handsome and beardless young man about the same age as his friend. The second was Clytus, a burly and ruddy-faced veteran general who they were told had fought in many battles over his fifty years. Calanus was an elderly Indian, long and lean, with a wispy white beard and glittering eyes full of wisdom. Completing the four was Ptolemy, who stood slightly apart from the rest of the group. He was a giant of a man, almost seven feet tall, and the sun gleamed on his ebony muscles. His eyes darted constantly to and fro, as though he expected danger at any second. Ptolemy saluted the doctor and his friends as did his other companions. As the young man led them to the camp, Barbara stood back and looked strangely at her new friends. She placed her hand over her mouth, as if to conceal her astonishment, and then smiled. Hephaestion, Clytus, Calanus, and Ptolemy, of course. Susan, do you know who the king is? she asked. No, who? Before Barbara could reply, Calanus came up to her and Susan. Were they not coming with them, he asked. Barbara looked at Calanus with something approaching hero worship. He and Aristotle were two of the wisest men of their time, she told him. Calanus shook his head. The world had produced only one wise man, he said modestly, and that had been Socrates of Athens. He was the one, he told Barbara and Susan, who had pronounced the eternal truth. And what was that? I know that I do not know, he replied. And what's so wise about that? Knowing one's ignorance is the sure sign of wisdom, Barbara said. In a world of infinite mysteries, Calanus said, completing the quotation, I admire your intellect, fair lady, and you, innocent maiden, will no doubt discover one day the meaning of the eternal truth. Now, shall we go? The king is waiting. Oh, just a moment. Exactly who is the king? I am the king, young maiden. Calanus, do the ladies refuse to join us? Uh, Calanus assured the king that they were just coming. Oh, good, I was getting worried. Oh, you shouldn't have. Calanus and Barbara were talking about Socrates, and I was asking about you. Hey, come to think of it, I still don't know your name. They call me Alexander of Macedon. <sighs> Barbara clapped her hands together in delight. 
I knew it! I knew you were Alexander the Great, she exclaimed. I am not that tall. <laughs> no, she meant that history knows you as Alexander the Great. Even in the 57th... Uh, well, you know what I mean. I am sure you flatter me. Shall we go? Within a beautifully decorated tent at the edge of the encampment by the walls of Babylon, Antipater and Glaucius were enjoying a flask of wine. Suddenly, the flap of the tent was pulled open and Iolus stalked in with an angry look in his eyes. Antipater looked quizzically at the young man and demanded to know his news. The king had ignored his prophecy, Iolus told him, and poured himself a drink. Antipater, however, seemed not to be concerned. He'd known all along that Alexander would not heed the prophet's words, he said. But not only that, Aeolus said. The strangers had also convinced Alexander that he, Aeolus, was a fool. The strangers? Antipater asked. This was news to him. He asked Aeolus to explain. Who were they? he asked. What were they doing here? Iolus shrugged his shoulders. Even he, a priest of Apollo, didn't know where the strangers had come from. Strangers, and four of them. We can use them. Four strangers equals four omens, Antipater said thoughtfully. He had already planned his four omens, Iolus pointed out rather peevishly. You do not need them anymore. The numbers are just right. We have to kill four people, and we have four strangers. It will be easy to link them to the deaths, Antipater said. You mean to accuse the strangers, Aeolus asked. Antipater shook his head. Not directly. We shall just let it be known that they are the evil omens. And they will get the blame and no one will suspect foul play, Aeolus realized. Antipater took a final draught of wine. Precisely. Oh, the gods are indeed with us, my friends. You will see that soon the king's camp will be in panic. And death and panic go hand in hand. Alexander led the doctor and his friends to his tent, which, like those of his men, was sparsely furnished and lay just outside the walls of Babylon. He invited them to sit with him around a low table and share a meal of fruit, breads and honey. Clytus, Calanus, Ptolemy and Hephaestion 
joined them and passed round goblets of wine. The doctor took a sip and declared it to be very fine indeed, and Alexander an excellent host. I am only sorry that I cannot entertain you yet in Babylon. Why is that? Because of Iola's prophecy? <laughs> no, not because of the prophecy. Babylon is a city of peace, and I have just come back from war. Before entering the city of peace, I must shed all thoughts of war. There was great wisdom in Alexander's words, Barbara said approvingly. Fair lady, a king is subjected to many compliments because of the nature of his position. I might be wrong, but I think I can detect sincerity in your tone, and it pleases me much. Barbara smiled. She meant what she said with all her heart, she assured him. Clytus threw back his head and roared with laughter. Barbara must then be unique among her kind, he said, for he knew no female heart that ever spoke with sincerity. Barbara glared at Clytus. His cynicism did him no justice, she remarked. This made Clytus laugh even more. You must forgive Father Clytus, my lady. When it comes to war, he is a giant, but of the fair sex, he knows less than an olive. <laughs> you call him father. Is he your father? Alexander shook his head and then put an arm round Clytus and hugged him. To know, fair maiden, he is more than a father. He is like ten fathers in one. He has all the virtues a man can have, except wisdom. <laughs> Am I not right, Clytus? Clytus laughed again and returned Alexander's embrace. On the contrary, the older man insisted. He did have wisdom, but Alexander thought him stupid because... Before Clytus could finish his sentence, Alexander cut him short. Veteran father, in view of both our vile tempers, I do not think we should argue our differences before our guests. There was a pause and a look passed between Alexander and the older man. He would do as the king asked, Clytus said. There would be time for arguments later. He laughed. When the moon raced across the sky, when night hid the ugliness of the world, and when the wine flowed like the pollen of myriad intoxicating flowers. <laughs> do you not think my dear father Clytus has missed his vocation? He should have been a poet. Not a warrior. <laughs> Perhaps. Sire, I feel I should say this, and I mean no indiscretion, but to me, your court is unlike that of any king. My court? Why? There is, how can I put it, a complete lack of protocol. It has an atmosphere of unlimited freedom. Perhaps because there is unlimited freedom. Ah. Yes, and there's this marvellous feeling of friendship. The innocent maiden's heart recognises the good. I agree with you. I, Alexander, am the richest man on earth, for I have such great friends. I have Hephaestion here, who is like ten brothers to me. He speaks very little, but he thinks the same thoughts, feels the same anguishes, and fears the same ills as Alexander. <laughs> Hephaestion smiled at Alexander and briefly pressed his hand. And then I have Calanus, the wisest man of our disjointed time. He can see wisdom in a newborn babe, beauty in a serpent, and goodness in ill fate. His perception rivals even that of my teacher Aristotle. The tall Indian bowed. He would never live up to such a eulogy, he assured Alexander. And then there is my noble Nubian, Ptolemy, whose eagle eyes focus only to protect me, and who is as indestructible as a temple and as gentle as he is strong. And finally, I have Father Clytus, a mighty warrior who fights like a wild boar. He has already saved my life in battle and is worth a whole army by himself. As Alexander toasted his friends, Barbara looked on in wonder. She said she used to daydream about Alexander and his friends, 
but never had she imagined she would meet them in history, or in the flesh, she hastily corrected herself. The doctor urged her to be silent, but Alexander had heard. He put down his cup and looked curiously at Barbara. The laws of hospitality forbid me to ask you who you are, strangers. And you are not forced to tell me. Should you even be my enemies, you shall remain my guests for as long as you wish. Oh, that's very kind. And when you decide to leave, you will do so with my gifts. But I am curious of your identities, because I have come to like you. We are not your enemies, sire. Then if you are friends, call me Alexander. Well, I'll introduce, shall I? I'm Susan Foreman. This is Barbara Wright, Ian Chesterton. And that's my grandfather. He's a doctor, and we're travellers. Travellers? Yes. Tourists. Voyagers. That sort of thing. Then you are very lucky. You fly like a bee from one mystery to another. The doctor chuckled. He couldn't have put it better himself, he said. And is there anything you search for which I can give you? Knowledge? <laughs> Alas, I am a very poor man where knowledge is concerned. Were the doctor and his friends scientists, Hephaestion asked? The doctor said that they were. Then you must stay here for a while, Reverend Doctor. You will have an abundance of things to study. Will you stay with us? Can we stay, Grandfather? Please, I'd like to stay. The doctor nodded and reminded Susan that until he could repair the TARDIS, they didn't have a choice. Good. We shall meet again tonight, for it is the Feast of Dionysus and acknowledgements are due to the gods. Until then, we have to attend our duties. My camp is open to you, Doctor. Later that day on the plane, Barbara and Susan came to watch Alexander's men in training, battling with their swords and shields under the hot afternoon sun. Alexander was fighting with Seleucus, unaware of the soldiers' earlier meeting with Antipater and the conspirators. From a little way off, Ptolemy watched their contest, never for one moment taking his eyes off Seleucus. Alexander fought with relish, like the invincible warrior all the world said he was. He whooped with delight as he brought his sword down onto Seleucus's shield. But there was no joy in the eyes of his opponent, just a thinly disguised hatred for the king. Seleucus brought his sword crashing down viciously on Alexander, who parried the blow expertly. Seleucus staggered backwards, almost losing his footing. You are forgetting the first law of combat, my friend. Fight with economy and always retain a reserve of strength. I do not tire easily, Alexander, Seleucus cried out and slashed out once again. This time, with even more venom, Alexander dodged the blade, but in doing so, staggered backwards and fell to his knees. Seeing his chance, Seleucus rushed forward and raised his sword at Alexander. Sensing danger, Ptolemy unsheathed his own blade and ran towards the two men. From his crouched position and before Seleucus could strike, Alexander pointed his own sword directly up at the Greek's heart. Seleucus froze. Had I been your enemy, Seleucus, you would have been dead. Seleucus lowered his sword. Alexander stood up and dusted himself down and then tapped his opponent affectionately on the shoulder. I told you not to overestimate yourself, Seleucus. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. I enjoyed our little bout. Thank you too, Alexander, Sir Lucas replied, but the tone in his voice suggested that he was not pleased at all. 
He shook hands with Alexander and left. Were you worried, Ptolemy? The Nubian smiled and returned his sword to its sheath. He should have known that Alexander had no equal in combat, he told the king. Alexander spotted Susan and Barbara for the first time. Have you been watching long? It was very... enjoyable. But not the sort of thing that should amuse the fair sex. <laughs> Incidentally, I have sent a messenger to Tyre. My wife, Roxanne, is there. She is with child, but I have asked her to come and meet you. You will be good company for each other. She should be here within the month. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. Now, if you'll excuse me, I will see you tonight for the feast. After Alexander had gone, Susan turned to Barbara. It would be good to meet Alexander's wife, she said. But Barbara wasn't so sure. There was a thoughtful expression on her face. Susan asked her what was wrong. I was just thinking about Alexander, she replied. Susan pressed her further. Alexander visited Babylon twice, first on his way to India and then on his way back. I hope it's his first visit, she said. Susan was puzzled. Why did Barbara hope that this was Alexander's first visit to Babylon, she asked. Did something happen the second time? Yes, something did happen the second time, Barbara said. Alexander the Great died. While Susan and Barbara had been admiring Alexander's skills as a swordsman and a warrior, the Doctor and Ian had been spending the time walking the length of Alexander's camp. Occasionally, the Doctor would pause to examine a rock or scrabble around in the sand before jotting a few words down into his battered old notebook. Typically, he would not tell Ian what he was doing. Finally, as the sun reached its zenith, they stopped and sat down to rest in the shade. Whew, that's better. <laughs> it's probably the heat, but it feels as if I've walked to London and back. Yes, agreed the doctor, as he reviewed his notes. It was a big camp. <laughs> I'll take your word for it next time, doctor. What made you want to go around and inspect the camp in the first place? The doctor closed his notebook and slipped it back into his jacket pocket. I was just looking around... I think I know how to extract some heavy hydrogen. Now, I shall need your help, Chesterfield. Chesterton. Uh, yes, uh, quite right. But we must work unnoticed, you understand? We don't want any inquisitive Greeks interfering, the doctor said. But help you with what, doctor? The doctor tut-tutted. Why don't you pay attention, my boy? We have to repair the fuel leak and replace the fuel, haven't we? Oh, the fuel. Petrol. How about petrol? This part of the world has the richest reserves of oil anywhere. Oh, so you've noticed it too. That's how we'll get our heavy hydrogen. Extract it from the oil, he told him. But can you do that, Doctor? The Doctor appeared disappointed by Ian's apparent lack of faith in his abilities. Given time, I can do a lot of things, Chatterton, he said. While the Doctor and Ian discussed their plans to repair the TARDIS, another plan was being formed. Inside his tent, Antipater was pacing up and down, thinking. Before him, 
hanging from a spear, were the four medallions of succession. He touched each one thoughtfully, admiring their craftsmanship. Glaucius was looking on, watching Antipater's every movement. Had the older man made his decision yet, he asked? Antipater smiled. It was not a pleasant smile. I am a man of refined tastes, Glaucius, and I always search for beauty in everything. Hence, I take my time in making my decisions, he said. Glaucius frowned, unsure of what Antipater meant, and asked him to continue. There are so many ways a man can meet his death. To the soldier or the peasant, the way he dies may not be important. But for people like Alexander and his friends, death should be experienced in one way, and in one way only. And that way is ignominiously. There should be poetic justice in death. For instance, a suitable death for you, Glaucius, would be from overeating. There was no need to be so offensive, Glaucius protested. But Antipater just laughed. He took the medallion of succession which had been made for Clytus and weighed it thoughtfully in the palm of his hand. Death should come to our victims as an anticlimax. Somehow it would make these great men more human, he declared. Antipater looked thoughtfully at the medallion of succession. Now what would be the ideal death for old father Clytus? he asked Glaucius. Before Glaucius could answer, the flap of the tent was pulled open and Aeolus came in. He had been to see Seleucus, as Antipater had requested, Aeolus said, but the general had told him he needed more time to think before he decided whether to join their conspiracy or not. The news seemed not to displease Antipater. Seleucus does not want to join us yet because he is not sure of our success. Once we present him with a few corpses, then he will be on our side, he said with a smirk. Iolus shook his head. He did not like involving Seleucus, he told Antipater. Did they really need him at all, he wondered. Unfortunately, we do need him. We profit only if Seleucus becomes king, he replied. He walked over to a table, poured out three goblets of wine from a pitcher, and handed one to each of his co-conspirators. Tonight, my friends, we celebrate the feast of Dionysus. Now, it goes without saying that old Clytus is going to get merry, as he usually does, so we'll organize an accident. What sort of accident did he have in mind, Oerlis asked? Shall we say... Drowned in a tub of wine? It would be an ignoble end for such a grand warrior as Clytus. Iolus and Glaucius began to laugh. I'm glad that it amuses you, gentlemen. Iolus, go and remind Alexander that something terrible is going to happen tonight, will you? And should he tell Alexander that the prophecy came straight from Apollo's mouth? Iolus asked. Antipater shook his head. Alexander does not seem to believe in Apollo. Use the strangers. Use the doctor and his friends instead. Later that evening, Hephaestion joined Alexander in his tent to prepare for the feast. 
He had brought with him a freshly pressed tunic for his friend to wear. They shaved together in front of a mirror made of polished silver. You will not enjoy wine tonight, Alexander, will you? Hephaestion asked. <laughs> a little. To wash down the dust of recent wars, Hephaestion. Drink in moderation, Alexander. Wine and your temper are not the best of friends, his friend cautioned. <laughs> By Zeus, Hephaestion, you are worse than my nurse. Now, who is this who comes to disturb us? Iolus walked into the tent and looked bitterly at Alexander and at Hephaestion. Hephaestion shrugged and continued shaving, but Alexander wiped his face and asked Iolus his business. I see you have decided against leaving Babylon, Iolus said. Yes, and tomorrow we shall enter the city. And don't tell me that's not wise, Iolus, on account of your prophecy. Iolus looked slyly at Alexander. The prophecy was true, he assured the king, and he should beware of the four omens which supported his prophecy. Omens? What omens? Look, Iolus, you have joined me in my campaigns because a Greek army feels unprotected without a prophet, and I tolerate you because of this. But toleration does not mean that I have to believe in your hallucinations. Then what about the strangers? Iolus asked. And now Hephaestion stopped shaving and joined his friend to listen to Iolus continue. Remember I said that the four-headed misfortune awaits you, sire. And now we have four strangers arriving out of nowhere at the exact time that I declared my prophecy. The four strangers personify the misfortunes. For each one of them, there will be a catastrophe. There will be a catastrophe for you if you do not leave my tent. Iolus glowered at Alexander and Hephaestion. Very well, I have done my duty. I warn you for the last time, do not remain by Babylon. Leave now before it's too late. Tragedy is by your elbow and it might strike at any moment, he proclaimed. You have had your say, now get out! I must get rid of him, Hephaestion. He is a bad influence on the army. Wearing splendid silk robes which Alexander had thoughtfully provided them, Susan and Barbara hurried off to the tent where the festival of Dionysus was to be held. The moon hung full in the night sky and in the trees owls hooted. Susan urged Barbara to hurry, otherwise they'd be late for the feast. Already they could hear the sound of merriment in the distance. Barbara, however, had other things on her mind. Susan pointed to Clytus, who was also making his way towards the festival tent. There's Father Clytus. You can ask him what the date is, then you'll know about Alexander. Barbara shook her head. She wasn't too sure she wanted to know, she told Susan. Clytus, however, had spotted them, and he walked up and greeted them with a smile. Clytus, what's the date? Barbara wants to know. It was the season between wars, Clytus replied. He looked up at the night sky. Did not the full moon look beautiful tonight, he asked them. Susan agreed that it did. Hmm, isn't it marvellous? Centuries pass by and the moon hardly changes. Clytus smiled at Susan's enthusiasm. Yes, the moon was as old as his own aged and crumbling body, he said. But at the moment, it is shining over Thessaly. And I envy it. He said with a sigh, 
Barbara smiled sympathetically at the old man, recognising in him the same feeling she'd experienced in her travels with the doctor. He was homesick, she realised, and asked him how long he'd been away from his own land. I've been away a whole lifetime, and now I long for the smell of mountains and for the sons who have grown stronger than me and the daughters who have become mothers. I cannot help wondering if I will ever see them again. No matter. Tonight we celebrate Dionysus, and I, for one, will drink to the memory of my beloved Greece. And you, my ladies, had better hurry up. Alexander expects punctuality from his guests, he said, and waved them away. Susan and Barbara hurried off in the direction of the tent, leaving Clytus alone. For a moment he stood there, misty-eyed, looking into the southern skies in the direction of his homeland. And then he turned and followed Susan and Barbara to the feast. The great feast of Dionysus was now in full swing. A long wooden table creaked under the weight of all manner of exotic fruits and meats. The wine flowed freely as cupbearers went to and fro, filling everyone's goblets. Before the table, magicians and conjurers performed tricks for the guests, and the atmosphere was convivial. The doctor, Ian, Barbara and Susan were seated at one end of the table with Alexander and Clytus, both of whom were the worse for wear. Hephaestion and Kalanus too, were merry, but Ptolemy remained perfectly sober, his eyes darting here and there, ready for any sign of danger. At the other end of the table, Antipater and his fellow conspirators looked on. Their goblets barely touched. Their eyes were on Clytus, who was seated next to the doctor and was regaling his friend with tales of his military exploits. He was finishing the story of how he had routed the Persian army at the Battle of Granicus River. Cowardly Persians had run away, faster than gazelles in a stampede, he said, and roared with laughter. Alexander, however, was not amused. He glared angrily at Clytus. Veteran father, refrain from insulting the Persians. They are our friends now. Doctor... Friends, you must forgive Father Clytus. He is all heart, and sometimes this makes him prone to prejudice. Alexander was wrong, Clytus claimed. What Alexander called prejudice was logic. Hadn't he always told the king he should never treat those he conquered as his equals? There could be only two races in the world, the masters and the slaves. Ian was intrigued. Why did Clytus think that, he asked. But before he could reply, Alexander interrupted. Veteran father, this is not the time to argue. Have respect for Dionysus. Besides, we have to entertain our guests. Clytus ignored the king and pointed at Ian. Did he disagree that the world shouldn't be divided into masters and slave, he asked? Ian said that he did. Clytus glared angrily at Ian and demanded why he thought such obvious nonsense. Very well, Clytus. Have you ever seen a woman give birth to a child? Of course he had, Clytus replied. And did any of these newly-borns have chains on their ankles or wrists? Oh, Ian, perhaps you ought to discuss this with Clytus later. Alexander, can't you make them stop? No, let them carry on. 
This promises to be good. I think Father Clytus may have met his match. Clytus hadn't answered his question, Ian reminded him. It was the stupidest thing he'd ever heard, Clytus said angrily. Of course, none of the newlyborns had chains on their ankles, he replied. What point was Ian trying to make? Well, correct me if I'm wrong, Clytus, but chains denote slavery. So if a man is not born in chains, hence as a slave, then he is not destined to become a slave. All men are born equal, so all men should remain equal. Friend Ian, I admire your argument, and I think everyone in this room would agree with you. What do you think, Kalanus? The elderly Indian wise man smiled at Ian and said, I congratulate you. All men born equal presupposes divine intervention, and that is how it should be. The gods are fair, and there is no prejudice in their creation. Calanus cast a knowing look at Clytus, before adding pertinently, It is only men, with their greed and uncontrolled emotions, who try to be more equal than others. Clytus angrily slammed his goblet down on the table. By Zeus, he declared, the Indian was deranged. And what about you, Hephaestion? We have not heard your views. I am not a thinking man, my brother, but Ian's argument smells of truth, he said with a smile. Ptolemy, too, agreed with Ian. A man's life was in his blood, he said, and blood was the same colour for all men. Even Antipater and his co-conspirators replied that they were inclined to think Ian was right when Alexander asked them their opinion. With everyone against him, Clytus stood up to leave the table. Alexander and all the others were all fools, he roared, and as blind as withered bats. That is enough, Clytus! Now fill up the cups. We shall pour libations to the gods. The cup-bearers rushed to fill the goblets, and everyone stood. Alexander raised his goblet and ceremoniously poured the drink onto the earth at his feet. Accept our libations, O Dionysus. Everyone followed Alexander's example. Accept our libations, O Ammon. Accept our libations, O Ishtar. Clytus angrily slammed his cup onto the table and cried out, Never! Never to Ammon! He is an Egyptian god, nor to Ishtar. She is a Syrian. Everyone stared at Clytus, who looked beseechingly at Alexander. My son, must you now integrate even the gods? He asked. Yes! I have united men with bonds of brotherhood, and now I must unite their gods. Now sit down, father! Clytus shook a fist at Alexander and roared. I accuse you of hubris, Alexander. Pride is a sin against the gods. Would you deny even Olympus itself? I said sit down, Father Clytus! Clytus showed no sign of obeying and advanced dangerously on Alexander. Hephaestion and Calanus rushed forward, fearing for Alexander's safety. Clytus pushed them angrily aside. I am accusing you in front of this gathering of irreverence, Alexander! Clytus bellowed. Alexander grabbed a spear 
and pointed it threateningly at Clytus. Veteran father, another word out of you and I will send your soul to Hades! Clytus laughed defiantly. He was accusing Alexander of betrayal, he said. Alexander was a traitor to Greece and to the very gods themselves. Alexander raised his spear and would have thrown it if Ptolemy had not blocked his way at the last second. Hephaestion and Calanus rushed over to the king's side. Alexander had lowered his spear now, and tears were running down his cheeks as he watched Ptolemy take Clytus firmly by the arm and usher him out of the tent. He called me a traitor. Father Clytus called me, Alexander, a traitor. Father Clytus! It was the sound of a scuffle outside. Clytus stormed back into the tent, with Ptolemy running after him. Alexander pushed Hephaestion and Calanus aside and raised his spear once again. Take back your words, Clytus. Do not make me kill you. Clytus looked at the spear and then ripped open his tunic to reveal his bare chest. Would Alexander really kill his father, he taunted? Would he sap the strength of those arms that had saved his life in so many past battles, he asked. Alexander's spear was now perilously close to Clytus's chest. Alexander was shaking with rage as his old friend looked defiantly at him, daring him to strike. Ian, who had been watching the brawl with the doctor, Susan and Barbara, moved forward to wrest the spear from Alexander, but the doctor held him back. They mustn't get involved in other people's quarrels, he told him. Barbara looked at Alexander and Clytus, who were facing each other. Neither of them prepared to back down. I don't think there's anything you can do, she said softly, suddenly realising, suddenly remembering what was about to happen. Ignoring the doctor's advice, Ian moved towards Clytus, hoping to grab him from behind and pull him away from Alexander. No one, however, had spotted Iolus, who had remained in the shadows with Antipater and Glaucius. He now stepped forward and also approached Clytus from behind. Quickly, Iolus pushed Ian out of the way. Ian tripped over the stool and fell to the ground. Hephaestion came up to Alexander and stretched out his hand to take the spear, which was still pointed at Clytus's bare chest. But Iolus was too quick. Pretending to help, he reached out for Clytus and pushed him right onto Alexander's spear. <coughs> Susan and Barbara screamed, and Ian jumped up from where he had fallen to come to Clytus's aid. Iolus, meanwhile, retreated to the back of the tent and smiled at his fellow conspirators, it was a smile and a look which did not go unnoticed by the doctor. Alexander was supporting Clytus, and hot tears were rolling down his face. As sober now, he helped the dying man to the ground, where he cradled him gently in his arms. Clytus looked up at Alexander. There was no hatred in his dying eyes now, only love for his king. He opened his mouth to speak. But his breath was fading, and Alexander had to lean close to hear him. Oh, son, my son, forgive me. I lost my temper, he whispered. Clytus's eyes closed, and he breathed his last. Slowly, Alexander pulled himself up to his feet and looked down at the dead body of his beloved father, Clytus. And then, 
Something seemed to snap in him. He pulled the spear from the dead man's body, and before anyone could stop him, raised and pointed it to his own chest. By Zeus, better and father, you shall not die alone! Gladys! and Ptolemy struggled with Alexander, trying to wrest the spear from him. But Alexander was too strong for him. He pushed them away furiously, and bellowing Clytus's name one final time, brought the spear down. When Hephaestion struck the king over the head with a heavy cup, Alexander groaned and slumped unconscious to the floor, and the spear clattered to the ground. Gently, Ptolemy picked up Alexander's unconscious body and with Hephaestion's help, carried him out of the tent. While Ian, Barbara and Susan looked down in horror at Clytus's dead body, the doctor stared accusingly at Iolus, who was huddled in a corner with the other conspirators. It was a look the prophet of Apollo did not return. Guiltily, he turned his face away. The following morning broke with a cloud-ridden sky, dark and funereal. Inside their tent, the doctor, Ian, Barbara and Susan were still coming to terms with Clytus's death and the way he had died at the hands of the friend he loved. Of Alexander, there had been no news. It's all my fault. I should have kept my mouth shut. Well, Ian, don't. It's not your fault at all. No, Susan, it is my fault. I shouldn't have argued with Clytus. I should have realised that I was harping on his pet hatred. If he hadn't got annoyed... But you didn't kill him, Ian. No, but I was instrumental in his death. Barbara interrupted them. None of us could have prevented the death of Clytus, she said. After all, Clytus had died that way. All the historians agreed on that point. Alexander, the historical Alexander, killed Clytus just as they had witnessed. Susan refused to believe her. It was an accident, she protested. Clytus had fallen onto Alexander's spear. They'd all seen it happen. Clytus's death was no accident, the doctor announced confidently. And Ian, Barbara and Susan 
looked curiously at him. Iolus had pushed Clytus onto Alexander's spear, the doctor declared, and he had seen him do it. Could the doctor prove it? Barbara asked. For without proof, such a wild allegation could only get them into trouble. Of course he couldn't prove it, the doctor admitted sulkily. When Susan begged him to keep his suspicion to himself for all their sakes, he reluctantly agreed. We mustn't get involved, Grandfather. Isn't that right, Ian? I should have kept my mouth shut. Well, Ian, stop torturing yourself. You're not responsible for the quarrel. Anyone could have started it. Yes, but it was me. How do you think it feels, being a catalyst of death? Ian stood up and rushed out of the tent. Barbara called after him, but the doctor urged her to stay. He asked Susan to follow Ian. When he and Barbara were alone, the doctor assured her that Ian would soon snap out of his mood. And besides, he said, they had more important matters to concern themselves with. They had to return to Babylon, get back to the TARDIS and repair the ship's leak. Well, nobody's stopping us, said Barbara. The doctor replied thoughtfully. No, but Alexander has postponed his entry to Babylon. He might resent it if we went. Barbara nodded. The doctor did have a point. And I don't think we could sneak into Babylon either. There are always guards on the Ishtar Gate. Yes, but if we could gain permission from Alexander, the doctor said, and then added, as an afterthought, that he would be happy to go himself, but... But you think it might be better if that request came from a woman, Barbara asked with a knowing smile. Oh, very well, if you insist. And don't think I don't know your motives. You're frightened I'll be exposing that charlatan prophet to Alexander, hmm? the doctor said. Barbara smiled again. Maybe, she said. That man can wait. We must try and find out who's behind the fellow first of all. At that moment, Iolus was in Antipater's tent with Antipater and Glaucius. Both he and Glaucius were laughing at the memory of Clytus's death. Antipater, however, distanced himself from their laughter. Instead, he looked thoughtfully at Clytus's medallion of succession on the table before him. Iolus poured himself another cup of wine. You're jealous, and all because I killed that stupid ox and not you, he said to Antipater. Iolus had risked the whole operation, Antipater said angrily. Because of you, Clytus did not die an ignoble death. And even now, outside, the entire Greek army is competing in athletic contests in honour of Clytus. The leagues around the countryside are smelling the smoke of his funeral pyre. That was not the death I had in mind for Clytus. I wanted that wild boar to die like a pig. In degradation and shame. But he's dead now, Glaucus said. Yes, he is dead now, Antipater said. And now there are three to go. With the hilt of his sword, he crushed Clytus's medallion of succession. Susan found Ian on a small hillside overlooking Alexander's camp. 
He was watching the athletes in the distance, competing in the funeral games. Ian smiled, grateful for her company, but they kept a respectful silence until they saw Kalanis approaching them. The Indian wise man bowed and greeted them. The athletes were making their very best efforts, he remarked. It showed just how highly they thought of Clytus. Ian didn't answer and turned away. However, Kalanis pressed a hand on his shoulder and made Ian turn and look at him. Ian, I hope you are not bearing a grudge against Clytus, because he disagreed with your views. He was a great man, despite his shortcomings, he told Ian. Ian shook his head, and Kalanis continued, Clytus never mistreated anyone and never forced segregation. Masters and slaves were words he was obsessed with, but he never practised his theories. Otherwise, Alexander would never have appointed him as one of his successors. Ian feels guilty for his death because of the argument. Calanus assured him that he should not feel any guilt. For if that were the truth, then we are all responsible, he said. And isn't that the truth? No. Clytus died accidentally. Like great discoveries, great deaths are accidental. Patroclus, for instance, died because he was mistaken for Achilles. And Achilles died because an accident made his heel vulnerable, the Indian said. And that's supposed to be a consolation? It was, Calanus replied. And especially for my friend Clytus who died in glory as an old warhorse should, at the hand of the man he loved and by whom he was loved so dearly. If you have pity, Ian, waste it not on yourself nor on Clytus. Spare it for Alexander himself, he advised. Calanus bowed once more. And now, if you will forgive me, it is past my hour of meditation and I must leave, he said, and walked off back to the camp. Back in Antipater's tent, Iolus had now passed out in a stupor. He was snoring loudly and still clutching a half-empty cup. Antipater, however, was alert. He was sitting at the table and holding in his gloved hand a beautiful and long-stemmed red rose. Glaucius watched on, fascinated as Antipater carefully dipped the stalk into a small goblet containing a dark, viscous liquid. Seleucus marched into the tent. Antipater smiled knowingly to himself, and not taking his eye off the rose for one second, welcomed the soldier. You took your time getting here, Seleucus. Have you made up your mind to join us? he asked. Seleucus shrugged. He was still uncertain whether he wanted to be part of the conspiracy, he told him. Antipatha carefully drew the rose from out the dark liquid. Tiny beads of red splattered onto the table. With Clytus dead, you are now third in line to the throne, Seleucus. And soon we will have more results for you, he said. Antipata turned and held the rose aloft for Glaucius and Seleucus to see. He told them to observe the rose carefully. It inspired poetry in lesser men than we. And like most beautiful things in the world, a rose too has its sting, he said with a smile. 
Seleucus frowned, not understanding, and reached out for the rose. Antipater snatched it back before he could touch it. Be careful, unless you want to die a slow and painful death. For this rose is a rose for Calanus alone. In his tent, Alexander sat on his throne alone, unattended save for Hephaestion. His red-rimmed eyes betrayed the fact that he'd spent a sleepless night. Before him on the table, platters of food lay untouched, despite Hephaestion's urging him to eat. Why should I eat Hephaestion? So that the body of a murderer should prosper long after the death of the murdered? It was an accident. Hephaestion insisted. He offered Alexandra a plate of food, which the king knocked angrily aside. And I tell you that it was patricide, Hephaestion! It was worse than murder! And you should not have prevented me from killing myself! And with you dead, who then would have ruled the world? Hephaestion demanded. You, Hephaestion, you are first in succession. I may be first in succession, but I'm no Alexander, Hephaestion pointed out. <laughs> no, that is true. You have not killed a father. What is this? I am in mourning, woman. Barbara walked into the tent. She bowed to the king and then to Hephaestion. She had come to offer her sympathy, she said. Sympathy does not bring back the dead. No, but it does exalt their memory, she countered, meeting Alexander's gaze. Then I thank you. Barbara acknowledged Alexander's gratitude. There was something she wanted to ask him, she said. Would he allow the doctor, Ian, Susan and herself to enter Babylon? Alexander angrily shook his head. It was a request he could not grant, he said. I may be Father Clytus's murderer, but I loved him, Barbara. And he is going to be mourned by everybody, even if I have to force it. And that includes you. Babylon is there forever. We are in no hurry to enter the city. You and your friends will wait till after the morning. There were different ways of mourning, Barbara told him. We mourn Clytus's death with our hearts, with as much reverence, if not love, as you do. But the doctor has his, his laboratory in Babylon, and work must never stop because of death. Otherwise there would be no progress, she said. Could he not see the truth in her words, she asked. Yes, and the sincerity too. Will the doctor's work eventually take you away from Babylon? Barbara said that it would, but that it would take some time for them to prepare for their departure. Certainly they would still be in Babylon when Alexander's wife Roxanne arrived. We shall miss you when you go. Now, you have my permission to do as you please. And Barbara, when in your thoughts you condemn me as a murderer, Remember that I loved Clytus as if he were a god. Barbara smiled kindly. My lord, I don't think any of us ever doubted that, she said, and left the king's presence. Night had fallen, and the funeral games for Clytus were ended. All throughout Alexander's camp, the old warrior's friends drank deep, toasting their fallen comrade and remembering the great battles they had shared with him. 
Kalanas, however, took no part in the wake. Instead, the Indian sat cross-legged on the floor of his tent, meditating. The flap of his tent opened and Antipater walked in. In his gloved hand he held the poisoned rose. He knelt down beside Kalanus and apologised for disturbing his meditation. Kalanus assured him there was no need to apologise. He looked curiously at the rose, which Antipater placed on the ground before him. I thought you would like it. I've never seen the equal of this rose. Not in the soil of Macedon, nor in all the lands until Babylon, he said pleasantly. Kalanus picked up the rose and held it up to admire. My people say that Rose is a weary traveller, but this proves them wrong, for this Rose has been washed in the firmament and moulded by the all-powerful. It has travelled a long way and is beautiful enough to crown a poet's head. I thank you for your gift, Antipater, he said. Antipater stood up and prepared to leave. There was a custom in Macedon which might interest Calanus, he told him. When admiring a rose, one should first of all feel its thorn. And let pleasure follow pain, he asked. Yes, he had heard of that custom. He pricked his finger on the thorn, and a tiny drop of blood appeared on the tip of his finger. Was it not marvellous that the colour of a man's blood was the same as the colour of a rose? He asked Antipater. Perhaps it is because blood and roses live such very short lives, Antipater said, barely concealing a smile. He wished Calanus a peaceful night and left the tent. Outside, Aeolus and Glaucius were waiting for him. Did the poison work? Aeolus asked. Antipater urged him to keep his voice down, and they walked away from Calanus's tent. Calanus will fall ill in a few days, and then lie in agony for a week or so, after which time he will take himself off to Hades, Antipater told them with relish. And was he sure there was no antidote to the poison? Glaucius asked. There was none, Antipater assured him. And no one would know the cause of Calanus's illness or suspect any foul play, he told them. It will be a most ignoble death for a warrior philosopher. And then, my friends, we will be one step nearer to riches. Some days later, after Alexander had declared an end to the official mourning period for Clytus, the king and Hephaestion were in his tent, packing a collection of scrolls and parchments into a large chest. Alexander was also carefully placing plant and flower specimens into the case. You're excited, Hephaestion. Is it the prospect of seeing Babylon again? Hephaestion smiled. They'd been gone a long time, he reminded Alexander. It would be good to pass once more through the Ishtar Gate and enter the city again. But it will not be the same. Not without Father Clytus. It has been a week since his death and already I feel like a born orphan. Now, have you packed my copy of the Iliad? Good. I have some plants here that might interest the doctor. Pack those too, Hephaestion. Let him study them before they are dispatched to Aristotle. 
Alexander handed the plants over to Hephaestion when he suddenly noticed that Hephaestion was not wearing his sword. Hephaestion went over and picked up the sword, which was hanging in a corner. Its hilt was marvellously ornate and studded with rubies and emeralds. The sword itself, with its curved blade, looked more like a Turkish scimitar than the ordinary straight swords worn by Alexander and the rest of his army. You must never forget your sword. You know how superstitious you are. Hephaestion looked admiringly at the blade. Alexander was right, he said. He should never forget the weapon. The old man of the sea gave it to me. Take it, Hephaestion, he said. It is a strange sword, but very sharp. Never part possession of it and only lend it to friends. For the day you lose possession of the blade will be the day of your death, he remembered. It is a good sword, my friend, and it did me a very good turn. Remember when you lent it to me to cut the Gordian knot? Suddenly Ptolemy burst into the tent. Alexander had to come quickly, the Nubian said urgently. Calanus had been taken ill. When Alexander and Hephaestion reached the Indian's tent, they found Antipater, Aeolus, Glaucius and Seleucus already there. They were gathered around Calanus, who was lying on a low divan. His eyes were closed and he was barely breathing. Alexander pushed the others away and knelt by his old friend's bedside. Calanus, it is me, Alexander. Calanus opened his eyes with difficulty and looked up at the anxious face of his king. I have come to the end of a long journey, my friend, he whispered and closed his eyes again. Shh. Keep your strength. Where is the physician? Where is Glaucius? Glaucius stepped forward. Calanus was dying, he told the king, and there were no herbs or medication in the world that could save him. Dying? Nonsense! You are a physician, are you not? If you do not save him, then I will not be responsible for your life. He was a mere mortal physician, Glaucius said, and not Apollo the healer. He could heal wounds and halt maladies, but he could not chase away death. Ptolemy, go and fetch the doctor and his companions. They may be able to save him. Ptolemy rushed out of the tent. Antipater and his fellow conspirators exchanged uneasy looks as Alexander dismissed them angrily from his presence. And the rest of you get out. Hephaestion and I will keep watch over him. Before they left, Aeolus walked up to Alexander, a sly look in his eyes. Did Alexander not remember the prophecy, he asked? For the prophecy was now coming true. First Clytus had died, and now it was the turn of Calanus. Get out! Aeolus ran out of the tent, and Calanus opened his eyes once more. Alexander, my noble friend, he began forming his words with difficulty. Do not talk, wise old man. Keep your strength. I have reached my eclipse, Alexander. So bear with me and grant me one last favor, he whispered. You can have the universe itself if it is in my power to give. I know, Calanus breathed, and then slipped out of consciousness once more. As he did so, Ptolemy returned, followed by the Doctor, Ian, Barbara and Susan. Doctor, have you the powers of healing? The Doctor strode over to Galanus and felt for a pulse. To a certain extent, my boy, he said. He took a handkerchief from his jacket and mopped Galanus's brow. 
Then do your best. He will. Don't worry, Grandfather is a very good doctor. The doctor clapped his hands, suddenly all businesslike. This tent is much too crowded. Chesterton and Susan, you had better leave. Miss Wright, stay. I might need your help. Yes, of course, said Barbara. Ian gently led Susan out of the tent. Hephaestion rested a hand on Alexander's shoulder, and then he too left with Ptolemy. Alexander turned to the doctor. You must save him, doctor. You must save him! Ian and Susan left the tent, followed by Hephaestion and Ptolemy. Their heads bowed in grief. Antipater, Glaucius, Iolus and Seleucus were waiting outside. They affected an air of concern and inquired after Calanus. Ian assured them the doctor would do all he could to help. Hephaestion looked sadly back at the tent. Calanus, lying ill, brought back memories of Clytus, he said. Really? How so? Hephaestion grew misty-eyed as he remembered. Once before in the Hindu Kush, we thought Kalanus was to die. He had been badly wounded, but Clytus went to visit him. And do you know what he said? I can never see eye to eye with you, old wise man. But I love you, so get well. And Kalanus did get well. Later, I asked Father Clytus what had made him say that to Kalanus, and I shall never forget his words. As I watched Calanus lying there, loving him like I never loved him before, and fearing for him, I felt proud of myself. Proud because Calanus and I had been friends. Proud because friendship outweighs all differences of opinion. So I wanted him to keep on living as a friend. That is what Father Clytus the supposed champion of intolerance said. Hephaestion brushed a single tear from his eye. Should Calanus die, then I do not think Alexander and I would survive for long, he said. You mustn't think that, Hephaestion. Oh, Hephaestion, I don't want Calanus to die. Susan buried her face on Hephaestion's chest, and he and Ian each put a comforting arm around her. Unmoved. Antipater and his fellow conspirators watched Hephaestion through resentful and hostile eyes. Inside the tent, the doctor in his shirt sleeves had finished examining Calanus. Alexander was pacing up and down the floor. Can you save him, doctor? The doctor removed his pair of pince-nez spectacles. Save him? I'm not sure, he said. Can you, or can you not, save him? The doctor tetchily told the king to stop shouting as Barbara helped him back into his coat. I can try, young man, but I cannot promise success, he said. Barbara asked the doctor what was wrong with Calanus. It was acute poisoning of the blood, the doctor told her. Probably anthrax. But what intrigues me is how he got it. It's already attacking his brain, you know. Then Calanus will die. Doctor, there must be something you can do, Barbara said. Of course there's something I can do. Well, then what is it? Give him an exchange transfusion. 
I won't be able to help the damage to the brain, but I'll be able to save his life, the doctor told her. You save Kalanus, Doctor, and you can have your choice of empires! Did the doctor mean he was going to change Kalanus's blood, Barbara asked? Of course he was, the doctor said. They would have to dilute the poison in the blood. If they could keep on doing it long enough, then they might be able to get rid of the poison. The doctor turned to Alexander. Now listen, young man, there's not much time to lose. I must first define Kalanis' blood group, and then that of your soldiers. But what are you planning to do? The doctor regarded Alexander as a schoolteacher might a particularly dim-witted pupil. I want your soldiers to become blood donors. About a pint from each should do, I think. Blood? Yes, that's right. Oh, do tell him what it's all about, Miss Wright. I haven't got all day to stand around here and chatter. By the time night had fallen, a large group of soldiers supervised by Ptolemy had lined up outside Colanus's tent. There, the doctor and Ian had set up an improvised blood donation centre, and using reeds and feathers to extract the blood and silver bowls to contain it, were processing the volunteers. Susan concentrated on sterilising the instruments in hot oil. A little way off, Antipater and the conspirators watched on darkly, as Alexander and then Hephaestion gave their blood to the doctor. When they had finished, Susan dabbed their wounds and bound their arms with fabric before handing each of them a cup of hot grape juice. Alexander drank the juice in one gulp and called over to the doctor who was busy attending to another volunteer. When will you be ready, doctor? The doctor ignored Alexander and continued his task of calling out for more volunteers. We'll start the transfusion pretty soon, and by morning we should have quite a supply to keep the treatment going. Alexander nodded his head, satisfied with the answer, and walked off to be alone with his thoughts. Antipater... Glaucius and Iolus approached him. Seleucus remained in the background, not yet ready to be seen so openly with the conspirators. Antipater bowed to the king. He was concerned that this giving away of blood was not proper, he said. Are you grudging Calanus your blood, Antipater? Antipater quickly said he wasn't, but that a man's blood should never leave his body. Really? A man is born to spill his blood. He does so for his country, for his women, and for his children. Look at my soldiers, Antipater. They are giving their blood away in exhilaration, for they know that it is in a good cause. Take example from them. But you cannot trust the strangers, sire, Glaucius pointed out. They are doing more than you are to save Calanus. But what they are doing is evil, Antipater protested. I do not care if it is evil. I do not care if from this very moment I am haunted by fury so long as the doctor and his friends save Kalanus. Kalanus is destined to die. I have already prophesied that, Aeolus reminded him. You are not a god, sire. You are not able to alter his destiny. Perhaps not. But no one can stop me from trying. While the doctor, Ian and Susan were attending to the donors outside, Barbara remained inside Kalanus's tent, 
nursing the old warrior, who kept drifting in and out of consciousness. Would the operation cure him? he asked weakly. Barbara applied a cold compress to his forehead. Of course it would, she lied. Completely. Will I soon be able to get up and attend to the needs of Alexander? he asked. Barbara turned away, unwilling to meet Kalanis's gaze or answer his question. When will I be back to normal? In a year? Five years? Ten? Well, not immediately. But the important thing now is to save your life, Barbara replied. Kalanis looked long and searchingly at Barbara. Fair lady, truth is a mutual bond between us. Do not break it now. Tell me the truth, he implored her. Your hesitation tells me the truth, Kalanis said, and laid a weakened hand on Barbara's. If she would not answer his question, then would she at least bring Alexander to him, he asked. Relieved, Barbara left the tent and returned moments later with Alexander. Upon seeing the king, Kalanis propped himself up in his bed and asked Barbara to leave them alone. When she had gone, Alexander sat beside his old friend who took his hand in his. I want you to build me a funeral pyre, Alexander. And if you love me, as I think you do, I want you to organize funeral games. No, Calanus, you cannot ask that of me. It is my last wish, Alexander. I want to walk to the pyre, dressed in uniform, and to die listening to the triumphant cries of the athletes. But why? The doctor will save you. Have you no confidence in him? Calanus said that he had every confidence in the doctor. But I also know the condition of my body. The doctor will keep a dead body alive. It is a wonderful thing, but it is not for Calanus, he sighed. Why not for Calanus? Because Calanus believes that a man must die when death becomes more attractive than life. Old friend, I cannot let you kill yourself. Tears ran down Alexander's cheeks, and Calanus raised a shaking hand to wipe them away. Thank you for the tears, my brave friend. They are the crowns of our friendship. Am I to understand that you will grant my wish? Would you, if you were Alexander? Yes, I would. Then I grant your wish. Thank you. And do not mourn for me, for soon we shall all meet again in another Babylon. Throughout the night, Alexander had set his soldiers to work in constructing the funeral pyre out on the plains beyond the walls of Babylon. Now, as dawn broke, Alexander watched on sadly as the final beams were bolted into place and servants doused the straw at the base of the wooden structure with oil. It is ready. Hephaestion, Ptolemy, go and fetch Calanus. The doctor had been observing the proceedings with Ian, Susan, and a strangely silent Barbara. As Hephaestion and Ptolemy moved off, he marched angrily up to Alexander. Ian followed, 
worried that the doctor might do something hasty. Young man, this is murder, the doctor said, shaking his fist at the king. Alexander looked oddly at the doctor, as though he didn't quite understand. No, it is Kalanis's wish. But you could stop it. Ian, please do not interfere. But the doctor could save his life. Do you want Kalanis dead? I would rather die myself than see Kalanis dead. For goodness sake, you don't have to die. We can save him. Have you no respect for a man's last wishes? No, not if it means suicide. What do you want to do, Alexander? Have the whole camp dead? First it's Clytus, and now you're sending Kalanis off to his death? Ian had gone too far. For a moment, Alexander tried to control his fury, and then he snapped and grabbed a spear. You will die for that, Ian! Alexander raised the spear and threw it at Ian. Ian! very last moment, Ian was shoved aside. The spear thudded harmlessly against a shield, which was thrust at the last second between Ian and almost certain death. He turned to see the shield-bearer, who had saved his life. It was Kalanus. He was dressed proudly in the full regalia of a king's general. Hephaestion and Ptolemy stood by him, ready to catch him should he fall. It was clear to everyone that it was only his willpower that kept him on his feet. With Hephaestion's help, he laid down his shield and walked forward to greet Alexander. This is a day of great joy for me, my noble Alexander. And if I am to meet my maker, then do not besmirch this day with blood, he told him. I am sorry, Kalanus. Forgive me, Ian, I lost my temper. Ian nodded begrudgingly accepting Alexander's apology, but still not liking the situation. Susan pleaded with Kalanus not to offer his life up on the funeral pyre. It is for the best, innocent maiden, he said softly. No, Kalanus, Alexander, this is wrong. The doctor strode up to Kalanus. Didn't he understand that this was all futile? And that he shouldn't take his own life? Kalanus shook his head. I am touched, my friends, and sorry that we differ in our outlook. But what must be done, must be done, he said. In which case, we won't let you. Ian and the doctor both moved to block Kalanus and prevent him from reaching the funeral pyre. But Kalanus called out to Alexander to stop them. Soldiers, keep them under guard. 
But do not hurt them. A group of guards sprang forward and surrounded the doctor, Ian, Barbara, and Susan. They moved them away at sword point from Alexander and Kalanus. The doctor's party could now only watch on helplessly as Kalanus and Alexander exchanged one final parting embrace. Barely containing his tears, Alexander handed Kalanus a scroll, the sacred document blessed by Alexander's priests, which would allow him safe passage into the underworld. With a scroll in one hand and his warrior's shield in the other, Kalanus made his slow and painful way up the wooden steps to his funeral pyre. Clearly now in great pain, he ascended the stairs, one excruciating step at a time, until he had reached the top. There, a wooden bier was awaiting him. He turned, looked down at the assembled soldiers below, and saluted. A great cheer went up as the soldiers returned his salute and raised their spears high in the air. Painfully, Kalanus lowered himself onto the bier. He closed his eyes and clasped the scroll close to his breast. Down below, Susan was crying, and she buried her face in Barbara's shoulder. Barbara, can't we do something? Barbara shook her head. It's all happening, Susan, just as it happened 2,000 years ago, she said helplessly. Alexander now came forward with a flaming torch. He uttered a solemn prayer and then lit the straw at the base of the funeral pyre. The straw caught fire quickly. Flames licked greedily at the base of the pyre, and soon the whole structure was ablaze, sending billowing clouds of dark and acrid smoke high up into the morning sky. Warriors of Alexander, let the funeral games begin! A mighty cheer arose from Alexander's men, and they dispersed to ready themselves for the games. Alexander, with Hephaestion and Ptolemy, approached the doctor's party and dismissed the soldiers who were guarding them. You must attend the funeral games in Kalanus's honor. The doctor glared defiantly at the king, making no secret of his disgust at Kalanus's death and what he perceived to be Alexander's role in it. Susan was in tears, and Ian's face betrayed no emotion. Only Barbara seemed reluctantly to be accepting the situation. It would be in accordance with his dying wishes. It was night now, and the funeral pyre of Kalanus had long since burned itself out. The funeral games were over, and a mournful silence had descended over Alexander's camp. Unable to sleep, Barbara had left her tent and was surprised to see Hephaestion sitting on the ground and staring dejectedly into the dying flames of a campfire. He looked up as she approached. Is it the thought of Kalanus's death that is keeping you awake? He asked. And Barbara said that, yes, it was. That and other things. Hephaestion was intrigued and pressed her further. It's seeing history unfold before my eyes, Hephaestion. I was taught that one should look upon history objectively. But now I find myself emotionally involved and it makes me very unhappy, she sighed. 
The Faustian frowned, clearly not quite understanding. Calanus is indeed a very lucky person. You mourn him as much as we do, and yet you met him only recently. I will consider myself lucky when I die, if there will be others beside my Alexander who will weep for me, he said. Barbara started. Don't say that, she said in a frightened tone. She moved a little way off from the fire and hugged herself, but not for warmth. Finally, she took a deep breath and, against her better judgment, but knowing that she needed the answer, asked her Feistian what the year was. It was the year of the 114th Olympiad, her Feistian told her. Quickly, Barbara did a mental calculation. Then that means the year is 323 BC, she realised, and then added, we count our years differently to you, Hephaestion. I see, said Hephaestion, who didn't see at all. But why did this date frighten her, he asked. Barbara abruptly changed the subject. She and the others will be leaving soon, she said, and inquired after Alexander. He was still in mourning for Calanus, Hephaestion told her. Alexander mustn't be left alone at a time like this. He needs someone to console him, she said. Hephaestion sighed ruefully. Alexander has always been alone, like all great heroes. The gods have given him special dreams and the burden of the world to support. He cannot sleep our kind of sleep, Barbara, nor can he grieve like you or I. He is, at this moment, crying like a baby and it is best if the world does not see Alexander's tears. Barbara smiled. You must love him very much, Hephaestion, she said. Love? What I feel for him cannot be defined in one word. Alexander is the sun around which my world revolves. Without him, I do not exist, he said. Hephaestion stood up to go. Tomorrow we enter Babylon. Let us hope that Alexander finds comfort in the city of a million fountains. Barbara urgently grabbed Hephaestion's arm. They mustn't go into Babylon, she told him. But when Hephaestion asked her why not, she could not reply. We will go into Babylon. Alexander wishes it, and therefore we must. While Barbara and Hephaestion were talking, not far away, the conspirators had gathered in Antipater's tent. Iolus, as usual, was drinking, and Glaucius was following his friend's example, as well as greedily gorging his mouth with sweetmeats. Antipater sat at the head of the group, contemplating Calanus's medal of succession, which lay before him on the table. Seleucus stood by his side, his eyes also fixed on the medallion. Are you still in doubt, my friend? Antipater asked. When Seleucus didn't answer, he brought the hilt of his sword smashing down onto the medallion, shattering it into tiny pieces. Calanus' death brings you nearer to the throne, Seleucus. Do you not think 
that it is time for you to join forces with us? he asked. Sir Lucas shuffled uncomfortably, but told Antipater and the others that he was still not ready to commit to their cause. Iola slammed down his cup and gestured at Sir Lucas. The soldier was prepared to let them do all the dirty work, he pointed out. They'd not done such a good job on killing Calanus with poison, Sir Lucas remarked snidely. Calanus had died only because he had wished it himself. The strangers could have saved him. They would take care of the strangers, Iolus said, and poured himself another cup of wine. The strangers have nothing to do with this, Sir Lucas, and I doubt whether they could have saved Calanus anyway. The point is, are you prepared to join us or not? He asked once again. Sir Lucas said that he needed more time to think, but Antipater replied there was no more time to prevaricate. The deaths of Clytus and Calanus had been easy to arrange, he said, but they needed Sir Lucas's full commitment for the deaths of Hephaestion and Alexander. From now on, Sir Lucas had to be with the conspirators or against them. And if he was against them, Antipater said craftily, then Sir Lucas could kiss goodbye to his dreams of grandeur. What if I denounce you? Sir Lucas asked. It would be your word against ours. Besides, even if Alexander did believe you, he would kill you on the spot for not having reported the plots against Clytus and Calanus, the older man said. Sir Lucas was caught in a trap, and he realised it. Finally, he agreed. He would join the conspirators in their plot to kill Hephaestion and Alexander. Antipater smirked and took a parchment out from the folds of his tunic. He handed it to Sir Lucas to sign. I suppose this gives you the right of succession should I become king and then die mysteriously? Sir Lucas asked sarcastically as he scanned the document. Antipater laughed scornfully. He and his fellow conspirators were not hungry for power, he assured him. Gold and riches had far more appeal for men such as them. By signing the contract, Sir Lucas would be promising them gold, should he become king. And when you do become king, Sir Lucas, you shall not see us for dust. Unless you take a trip to the pleasure houses of Athens, Antipater laughed. Sir Lucas took the reed pen that Glaucius offered him and scrawled his signature at the front of the contract before handing the document back to Antipater. Antipater pulled out the forged medallion of succession he had made for Sir Lucas and placed it over the soldier's neck. He had earned it, he said, and now it was time to attend to their next victim. Hephaestion was to be the next to die. A week had now passed, during which time the doctor had spent much of his time extracting the heavy hydrogen and spending his time between Alexander's camp and the TARDIS on the other side of the Ishtar Gate in Babylon. As she waited in her tent with Ian and Susan for the doctor to return, 
Barbara hoped he'd soon have his ship prepared. She wanted to leave in the TARDIS as soon as possible, she said. But why now, Barbara? I don't think I can sit around and just wait for other tragedies to happen, she replied. Wait for other tragedies? What do you mean? Barbara was about to answer when the doctor walked into the tent. Ah, there you all are. I just thought you'd all like to know we shall be leaving tonight, he told them with a smile. Tonight, Grandfather? That's what I said, my child. I've fixed the leak, and we shall have enough heavy hydrogen by tonight. Barbara heaved a sigh of relief. That was wonderful news, she said. The doctor agreed that it was. He also hoped they realised just how extraordinarily clever he had been at extracting heavy hydrogen out of crude oil to enable the ship to run smoothly again. Susan hugged her grandfather and assured him that, yes, he was most extraordinarily clever. <laughs> Thank you, my dear. By the way, I, I've just seen that young man. Uh, what's his name? Alexander's friend. Hephaestion? That's right. I told him we were leaving. And, well, it's quite a coincidence, really. But it seems that they're all going to Babylon as well. Just think. You, me, Alexander, we'll all be in Babylon together. Then we'll be able to say goodbye to Alexander and Hephaestion properly. Oh, that's wonderful news. Isn't that wonderful, Barbara? But Barbara just shook her head and buried her face in her hand, dreading what the coming day would bring. Over in Alexander's tent, the king and Hephaestion were making the final adjustments to their ceremonial robes, ready for their entry into Babylon. By his side, Hephaestion wore the sacred sword that had been given to him long ago by the old man of the mountains and from which he could never be parted. Outside, they could hear the army as it prepared to make its way through the great Ishtar Gate. Babylon awaits us, Hephaestion. A city of singing gardens and a million cascades awaits us. And yet, without Father Clytus or Calanus at my side, I feel as if I am entering a tomb as dark as that of the pharaohs. Hephaestion smiled and adjusted his friend's robes, and then stood back to admire them. Where would Alexander go after Babylon, he wanted to know. How can a man read the future, Hephaestion? He could try planning it, Hephaestion responded with a wry smile. Read for me tonight from the Iliad, Hephaestion. Hephaestion wasn't to be dissuaded. Are we ever to return to Macedon, he asked. But not a sad story, though. I have shed far too many tears recently. Did I ask too difficult a question? Hephaestion persisted. An awkward pause followed. Had Alexander even thought about planning the journey back to their homeland? Hephaestion asked. Oh, yes, I have. Do you want to go back, Hephaestion? Yes, I do. Then I will not stop you. You know I would never desert you, Alexander. If I am destined to see Macedon again, then I will see it with you, Hephaestion said. It is not that I do not want to go back. I cannot. Hephaestion smiled knowingly. Because you have not conquered the whole world yet? Is that not too big a dream even for you, he asked? Is it, Hephaestion? Take a look at Alexander's empire. 
Has there ever been such an era in the history of the world where men of different beliefs, of different colours and of different races lived in complete harmony? Where a dark skin could marry a light skin and not be condemned? Hephaestion chuckled. The world followed your example. You married Roxanne, a Persian, but... Alexander cut him short. No buts, Hephaestion. Look what happened. We now live in an era where a Greek is the brother of a Persian. Where Spartans, Nubians, Egyptians, Lydians, Indians and a host of others join hands as one for the common good. Has there ever been such an era? And you want me to leave this world unfinished? Hephaestion, there are other races who must join the Brotherhood. By force? Asked Hephaestion. I use force only when necessary, you know that. A great many who joined our Union of Nations did so because they wanted to. Even those who fought me became my friends when they saw my dream. I have not spent thirteen years warring because I wanted glory. No, I want the whole of the world to be like Alexander's camp. I want a world where men as different as Calanus, Clitus, Ptolemy, Hephaestion and Alexander can sit at one table and celebrate friendship and goodwill. Can I now return to Macedon? Alexander was the link which bound the nations together, Hephaestion agreed. But what worries me is what happens when the link breaks. What happens when you die, Alexander? Have you thought of that? He asked. I have. And the fates have cheated me. Until a short time ago, I had you, Clytus, and Calanus to continue the union of nations in case of my death. And now there is only you, Hephaestion. I would not live if you were dead, Alexander, he said. But you would live, for you would honour my last wish, Hephaestion. But what would happen if he died too, Hephaestion asked. Then chaos would probably rule once more. And that is why I have to try, Hephaestion. There is always the chance that people might remember Alexander and live as they lived under him. People have short memories, Alexander. They only remember gods, Hephaestion said. A man becomes a god by doing the impossible. And if it will help the world, then I will become a god. Now let us drop this discussion. For mere words will not change our destiny. Come, Hephaestion. Babylon awaits us. Shortly afterwards, Alexander, with Hephaestion and Ptolemy at his side, led the procession of warriors to the Ishtar Gate and the entrance to Babylon. By passing through the gate, they were marking their departure from the field of war and their entry into the goddess Ishtar's domain of peace and love. Yet there were some whose thoughts were not of peace and love. And as Alexander was about to cross the Ishtar Gate, he found his way blocked by Aeolus. In a voice loud enough to be heard by all of Alexander's men, he warned Alexander not to enter the city. If he entered Babylon, he cried out, then disaster would surely fall on him and all his kind. You are blocking my way, Aeolus. With an evil smile, Aeolus moved out of the king's way, allowing Alexander and his men to cross the Ishtar Gate and into Babylon. Aeolus ran over to Antipater, Glaucius and Seleucus, who had been watching from a distance. 
Their plans were going well, Iolus remarked with glee. Once again, Alexander had ignored the warning. The king was playing right into their hands, Antipater agreed. Whenever a catastrophe occurred, because of Iola's prophecies, Alexander and the army would put the blame on Apollo and never even suspect foul play. There was another catastrophe to arrange, Glaucus reminded them. How were they to kill Hephaestion? Antipater laughed a cruel and hateful laugh as he addressed his comrades. Let us see if we can improve on our previous efforts. Let Hephaestion's death be an insult to his manhood. Let him die a woman's death. In the throne room of the Palace of Babylon, Alexander paced up and down, his footsteps echoing on the marble floor. He paused only occasionally to take a sip of wine. By the throne itself, the ever-faithful Ptolemy stood guard. Suddenly, the great doors to the throne room were flung open and two Nubian guards led in the Doctor, Ian, Barbara and Susan. Alexander dismissed the guards and walked up to the Doctor's group. There was an anxious look on his face as he grabbed each of their hands in welcome. Is it true what Hephaestion told me? That you are leaving? It was, said the Doctor. We must, Alexander. Poor Alexander, who is losing the company of those he loves. We shall miss you. You really are sorry we're going, aren't you? It is a great pity that you will not meet my wife, Roxanne, for you would have been great friends. But that is life. A man must be on the move like a river. I have sent Hephaestion to fetch gifts for you. He won't be long. Barbara remarked they'd wondered where he was. They'd been expecting to see him here. Please, you don't need to give us gifts. Parting company without exchanging gifts would denote enmity, Ian, and you have never been Alexander's enemy. We have had our differences, but your efforts to help me in my distress have made me your admirer. Please, let me show you my appreciation. If the king was to give them gifts, then they should also give the king gifts, Barbara said. I am a king, Barbara, and can afford gifts. You must keep your possessions to yourselves. Ian and the Doctor are scientists, and we know that they are always short of funds. They keep telling us often enough. <laughs> you don't judge a gift by its value, Alexander, but on how it's given. That is very true, Ian. I remember once I tried to enrich a Sinopian philosopher by the name of Diogenes. He was a very wise man. He lived in a barrel. I offered him gold, and he refused. And when I asked him what he would like most for a gift... The Doctor interrupted him. And he said, move to one side. You're shielding the sun from me. <laughs> but, but that is exactly what he did say. How did you know that, Doctor? <laughs> the whole world knows that. Then the whole world must appreciate the wisdom of Diogenes. He showed that mortals cannot compete with the immortals in the manner of giving gifts. That the rays of the sun are worth more than all the gold in the world. Barbara stepped forward. Where we come from, Alexander, a gift is given with the heart, she said, and removed the plastic bracelet she wore around her wrist and handed it to him. It was all she had on her, she said, but she would like him to have it. It is as valuable to me as the treasures of Cyrus. I thank you. Ian followed Barbara's example and took his fountain pen from out of his pocket and handed it to Alexander, who accepted it with thanks. Grandfather? Aren't you going to give Alexander anything? 
The doctor fumbled in the pockets of his frock coat and eventually pulled out an old-fashioned compass. Alexander looked on in wonder as the doctor showed him how it worked and how its needle always pointed to the north. Kalanus mentioned something about an instrument such as this. There is a tribe beyond the Indus who use it. Uh, they were called the Chinese, uh, the doctor told him. Or at least they would be one day. I'm afraid I have nothing to give you, Alexander. Except this. <laughs> a gift is a memory, innocent maiden, and remains with the receiver until he dies. I shall remember you all for as long as I am called Alexander. Well... We must get ourselves ready to go. Yes, and I shall find Hephaestion. I wonder where he is. He is probably having difficulty choosing your gifts. I will bring them myself to your laboratory. An hour before, Hephaestion had been walking through the hanging gardens on his way to organise the parting gifts for the doctor and his friends. Occasionally, he'd stopped to smell the fragrant flowers, unaware he was being followed. Trailing him stealthily and keeping just out of sight were Antipater, Glaucius and Iolus. They followed him into a small arbour where he'd paused on his way to enjoy the heavenly music of the plants. Suddenly the conspirators broke cover and threw themselves upon him. Caught by surprise, Hephaestion didn't even have time to defend himself. Glaucius and Iolus grabbed his arms and held him fast. Antipater drew out his sword and brought its hilt crashing down onto Hephaestion's skull. Hephaestion let out a moan and thudded senseless to the ground. Antipater ordered Glaucius and Iolos to pick Hephaestion up and carry him off to a small hut in a secluded part of the gardens. They threw him down onto the floor, which is where he came to, to see their sneering faces looking down on him. Glaucius was holding Hephaestion's sword, and Antipater was dangling mockingly over him, his medallion of succession. And then Hephaestion felt something heavy and alive move on his stomach. He looked down in horror at the black asp slithering up his naked chest. Its mouth gaped open, revealing deadly fangs, and it hissed menacingly at him. The door to the hut opened, and Sir Lucas walked in. He looked shocked at the sight of Hephaestion on the floor, the deadly asp on his breast, poised to strike. See how the mighty are crushed, Sir Lucas. Antipater chuckled evilly. Hephaestion glared at him, all the time keeping one eye on the asp. Iolus rubbed his hands gleefully at the sight of Hephaestion helpless on the floor. Killing this brute with an asp is a stroke of genius, he laughed. It will be a fitting death, Iolus. It will be a lovesick woman's death for Alexander's little friend, Hephaestion. Antipater agreed. Hephaestion carefully raised his arm in an attempt to push the asp away, but the snake struck and sank its deadly fangs into his arm. Hephaestion yelped with pain and then with his other arm grabbed the asp and crushed it to death in his fist. And that is the end of Hephaestion, Antipater said. 
he flung the medallion of succession down to the ground and crushed it with his foot. Hephaestion tried to raise himself up. The asp still clasped firmly in his hand. The side of his arm was already bruised and bloodied. He demanded to know why he had been poisoned. They were making Iola's prophecy come true, Antipater replied mockingly. And when everyone had been killed, then they would pass on the throne to Seleucus. Hephaestion fell back onto the ground. The poison was working quickly. But what about Alexander, he asked. What would happen to the greatest Grecian who had ever lived? Alexander will follow you. He has lived much too long, he replied. Hephaestion could hardly believe the words he was hearing. Suddenly, summoning up all his strength for the sake of Alexander, he sprang to his feet. Glaucius, who had Hephaestion's blade, was taken by surprise. Hephaestion wrested the sword from him and raced to the door, the weapon in one hand, the crushed snake in the other. Antipater unsheathed his own sword and chased after the younger man who had already reached the door. Glaucius jumped onto Hephaestion. Hephaestion pushed him off and then struck out with his sword. Glaucius fell to the ground, dead. Hephaestion stumbled out of the door. Antipater raced after and brought his sword crushing down on him. He parried it expertly and then slashed at Antipater. Antipater leapt out of the way just in time. Hephaestion succeeded only in knocking a buckle off his tunic. Wasting no time, Hephaestion once again thrust at Antipater. Who blocked the attack, but in doing so, fell back and lost his balance. Hephaestion stumbled off and out into the hanging gardens, using the dense foliage for cover. But the poison was now having its effect. He tripped and fell, then dragged himself up again and staggered on. A normal man would have died by now, but he struggled on, willing himself to stay alive just long enough to warn Alexander. Behind him, he could hear the conspirators in hot pursuit, breaking a path through the plants and shrubbery. He heard Antipater bark out instructions to Iolus and Seleucus for them to split up and find him. Hephaestion froze. There was a rustling in the leaves behind him. He threw himself down to the ground, scarcely daring to breathe. He could hear Antipater and Iolus looking for him, and then their voices became fainter as they walked away to continue their search. Hephaestion tried to stand, but by now the world was spinning around him. His legs gave way and he slumped to the ground. Still he refused to give up. Digging his fingers into the earth, he pulled himself forwards, crawling inch by painful inch his one remaining purpose in life, to reach and warn his king. By now, Hephaestion was so delirious that he didn't even realize that the sword was no longer at his side. It lay lost in the hanging gardens of Babylon. In another part of the hanging gardens, Ian and Susan were standing by the open door of the TARDIS, waiting for the Doctor and Barbara, who were inside checking the ship's instruments. I feel very sad leaving Babylon. Yes, so do I. Strange that Alexander hasn't come along with the presents. Oh, he'll be along. What would you like him to give you? A cup, I think. It'd go just right with my mantelpiece. <laughs> what about you? Hmm, I don't know. Anything, really. The Doctor and Barbara came out of the TARDIS. 
They were all ready to go, the doctor informed them, when they suddenly heard a rustling in the leaves. What was that? It came from over there. Hephaestion! More dead than alive, Hephaestion was crawling towards the TARDIS. In one hand, he still held the crushed snake. The Doctor, Ian, Barbara and Susan rushed over to him. As they did so, they were unaware that they were being watched by Antipater and Iolus, who had finally tracked the dying man down, seeing the strangers, the conspirators, hid in the shrubbery. Hephaestion was on the verge of death, and though he moved his lips as if to tell them something, no words came from his mouth. He opened up his hand to reveal the crushed asp. The doctor pushed Ian, Barbara and Susan out of the way and bent down to take a look at the wound on Hephaestion's arm. Will he be all right, Grandfather? Oh, please say he'll be all right. The doctor stood up and sighed. There was little they could do for the young man, he told them sadly. Here, let me try. Ian knelt down and lifted Hephaestion's arm. He started to suck at the snake bite, trying to spit out the poison. Hephaestion moaned deliriously. He's only trying to help, Hephaestion. Too late. It's too late, he said in a cracked voice. He took a deep breath and, gathering all his strength, said, Tell. Alexander, tell Alexander. They were the last words Hephaestion ever spoke. With a final convulsion, his head fell back and he died. Ian continued sucking out the poison until the doctor laid a hand on his shoulder and told him to stop. There was nothing any of them could do. Ian let Hephaestion's arm fall, lifeless, to the ground. There was a cry of trumpets, and Alexander and his retinue entered the gardens, laughing and joking and bringing with them parting gifts for the doctor and his friends. Alexander smiled generously at them and opened his arms to greet them. And then he saw Hephaestion lying dead on the ground. The king's face fell. He frowned as though he couldn't, wouldn't, believe what he was seeing. He glanced over to the doctor and then, like a sleepwalker, went over and knelt by the lifeless body of his friend. With a trembling hand, he touched Hephaestion's cheek. It was cold to the touch. Alexander closed Hephaestion's eyes and then kissed him gently on the forehead. He stood up. Tears were streaming down his face. He clenched his fists and raised them heavenwards. Hephaestion! Hephaestion! No! The world lies dead at your feet, Alexander. What god sitting in Olympus dares kill my Hephaestion? What god in Olympus dares this? Alexander waits for an answer! Iolus left his hiding place and rushed towards Alexander. You, prophet, you! 
then you shall die! Maddened, Alexander whipped out his sword and drove it through Iolus, killing him on the spot. Antipater and Seleucus now came forward, and Alexander turned on them. Seleucus grabbed the hilt of his sword, ready to fight back, but Antipater came between him and the king. You have killed in vain, Alexander. The prophet was about to accuse the strangers, he declared, and pointed to the doctor, Ian, Barbara and Susan. Alexander spun round and faced the doctor and his friends. You killed my Hephaestion? Of course they had nothing to do with his death, the doctor said indignant. Silence! And here was Alexander bringing you gifts, thinking that Hephaestion had forgotten his duty, whilst all the time you were killing him. Warriors, arrest them! Alexander's soldiers dropped the caskets of gifts they had brought and surrounded the doctor, Ian, Barbara and Susan. Alexander came up to them and raised a hand as if to strike them. I will send you all down to Hades, and in such a manner that it will offend even the heavens! how we'll die. Alexander's guards had imprisoned the doctor, Ian, Barbara and Susan in a dark dungeon in the depths of the palace. There they had been chained to the walls and left with nothing but bread and water. And still no word had come from Alexander. Die? Who's thinking of dying, hmm? Asked the doctor. Well, we can't very well escape from here now, can we? Replied Ian. The doctor harumphed. Of course they could escape, he told them. If they kept thinking, then they'd surely come up with a solution. Barbara looked at the locked door of their prison cell. Even if they could somehow free themselves from their chains, she didn't see how they would get past the guards outside. I don't think Alexander would kill us. He's bound to find out that we had nothing to do with Hephaestion's death. I wouldn't count on that. But why did Antipater accuse them in the first place? Barbara wondered. Treachery, Miss Wright. Treachery, said the doctor. But before he could explain, the door to their dungeon was opened. Ptolemy entered the cell, accompanied by two guards, 
We instructed to unfasten their chains. Once they had been set free, he ordered them to come with him. Susan searched Ptolemy's face for a clue as to what was going to happen to them. But the Nubian's face betrayed no expression. For all Susan knew, they were all being taken to their execution. Alexander, king of the Macedons and lord over half the world, was in his great throne room. His eyes were red with grief, and he had cut his hair short as a sign of mourning for Hephaestion. His robes remained unwashed, and his normally beardless face was covered with stubble. More wine, friends. More wine. Alexander held out his cup, which Antipater took. He walked over to a small table where Seleucus was standing guard. Antipater poured more wine into the cup and then withdrew a small locket from the folds of his tunic. Making sure Alexander wasn't watching, he poured the powdered contents into the cup. The poison would give the king a high fever, Antipater told Seleucus in a whisper. It would sap his strength until there was nothing left of him but decaying bones. What are you two whispering about over there? We were just saying that we think you are drinking too much, sire, Antipater replied. You're entitled to think whatever you want. But if you delay any more with my wine, then you will not have a head to think with. Antipater bowed meekly and handed the cup over to Alexander, who downed it in one, and then asked for another. The doors of the throne room were flung open, and Ptolemy entered with the Doctor, Ian, Barbara and Susan. Leave us, Ptolemy. And you too, Antipater and Seleucus. We will see the strangers alone. As Ptolemy started to leave, Antipater asked the king whether it was wise to be left alone with the strangers. What has Alexander to fear? Two women, an old man and a scientist? They are here for their trial, are they not? Antipater asked. Alexander said that they were. In which case, Antipater continued, surely he and Seleucus should also be present. I have noticed an evil streak in you, Antipater. You delight in other people's misfortunes. Very well, you may stay. And you as well, my noble Ptolemy. Ptolemy returned and stood protectively behind Alexander's throne as the king addressed the doctor. Do you know why you are here? Yes, I do. And I protest most strongly, the doctor said defiantly. Antipater angrily told the doctor to be silent and made to strike him, whereupon Alexander told him to stop. Antipater, if you touch but a hair of the old man, it will be the last act of your miserable life. I am to conduct this trial, and I want no interruptions. Antipater turned away, and Alexander turned his attention to the doctor. If you have anything to say, say it now. I most certainly have plenty to say, the doctor said angrily. But Ian stopped him, and suggested he should plead their case to Alexander in a calmer, more considered manner. Reluctantly, the doctor agreed, and allowed Ian to speak to the king. Alexander. You have betrayed my friendship, Ian. I forbid you to address me as Alexander. None of us 
has betrayed your friendship, Alexander. Because we are all innocent. Is that all you have to say? Yes. You cannot support innocence with a million flowery words. Innocence stands out on its own, like a beacon. Maybe you can't see it now, but one day you will. And if you kill us, on that day, you will regret the injustice. Alexander paused and considered Ian's words carefully. Can you prove your innocence? It's the other way around, young man. A man is innocent until proved guilty. Can you disprove our innocence? The doctor asked him. Antipater told the king that he could indeed disprove the doctor's innocence. Very well. You may speak, Antipater. The strangers were present at the death of Hephaestion, Antipater reminded him. They had been crouched over his body. But we were only trying to help him. Help him? That's easy to say. You kill him and then claim you were trying to help him? That's not true. Ever since the strangers had arrived in the Greek camp, three of Alexander's greatest friends had died, Antipater reminded him. Surely that couldn't be mere coincidence. Alexander didn't reply, but urged Antipater to continue. The strangers had been there when Clytus had fallen onto the king's sword, Antipater said. Clytus and Alexander had fought each other in anger many times before. But it had only been in the presence of the strangers that a tragedy had occurred. The doctor had been sitting close to Clytus the night of the feast, Antipater said. For all they knew, the doctor might have pushed him onto Alexander's spear. The doctor started to protest. But Alexander ordered him to be silent and to allow Antipater his say. Antipater remembered that Colanus suffered a similar sickness when they had been campaigning in the Hindu Kush. He had survived that sickness. It was only when the strangers started treating him that he decided to end his life. Was that coincidence as well? he asked. Your warriors fear you may be next, sire. To appease the camp, you must exterminate this evil quartet, redeem the deaths of your friends, and prevent a fourth tragedy. Alexander, if we plotted the deaths of your friends, what did we expect to gain? Gain? Without gain, nobody commits murder. And murder is what we are accused of. What possible motive could we have had? We, who came to your campus travelers, enjoyed your hospitality, were about to leave. We brought nothing here except friendship. And we were taking away nothing except the memory of this friendship. Why then should we decide to cause death all around? It doesn't make sense. Any of your generals might stand to gain by the deaths of your friend, including Antipater, but not us. You are accusing me. You who are on trial here, asked Antipater. The strangers were under the command of an evil god, he said. It was just as Iolus had said. 
Barbara, who'd remained silent so far, addressed Alexander. There was no way they could argue against Antipater's claims that they were being used by an evil god, she told him. After all, no one could check the truth of such a statement, she pointed out. Alexander told Barbara to continue. Denial is never a potent weapon against such a willfully concocted accusation. The stigma remains with us, whilst our accuser hides behind a vague, misty supernatural, she told him. Antipater started to protest. Do you mind? I'm talking. Couldn't Alexander see how attached they had been to him? Barbara asked. And not just to him, but to Hephaestion, Calanus, and Clytus as well. Still, Alexander remained silent. He regarded the faces of Barbara, the Doctor, Ian, Susan and Antipater in turn, and sipped thoughtfully on his drink. And don't forget, we could have saved Calanus, but you wouldn't let us. Why did we try to do that if we wanted him dead? I have now lost three of my dearest friends. A chain of events which has left me devoid of feeling. So today, Alexander is a machine who can judge not with his heart, but with logic. I cannot close my eyes to Antipater's argument, for it is true that, since your arrival, three deaths have occurred. Nor can I ignore the way you have fought off the accusations like truly innocent men. Therefore, I have decided to compromise. I will punish only one of you. You are to die, Ian. No, you can't do that! Shocked, Ian said nothing. But the doctor shook his fist defiantly at the king. I won't allow it, young man, he said. If Ian was to die, then she would die with him, Barbara said. And so will I, and so will grandfather. Uh, now, just a second, child. Uh, oh, very well, then. We'll all die together. There, young man. Does that satisfy you now, hmm? No. Alexander... Will you let them go free? Yes. Then let them go free and kill me in whatever way you choose. And Doctor, don't argue. There's no reason for us all to get killed. This is injustice, Ian, and we'll suffer it with you, Barbara said. <laughs> you have done me proud, strangers. I was testing you. There are three qualities I value dearly in this world. Love, wisdom, and courage. And you have shown them all. You mean, you'll let us go? Not quite. Despite these qualities, you may be evil. At least in the eyes of my warriors and in view of Iolus's prophecy. Therefore, I intend to give you the chance to wipe out the stigma. Alexander had to kill them all. Antipater protested, before they caused any more evil. Silence! All my ancestors, from Achilles onwards, believed that when a person's integrity was in doubt, or when they were accused of evil complicity with the supernatural, then that person was entitled to prove himself in the arena. In that case, we are ready. Good. Because that is what I have decided. You, reverend old man, cannot contest in the arena. Therefore, you shall undergo the test of truth as practiced in Macedon. You will walk the fire. <gasps> walk over fire? 
Grandfather, you can't! The doctor seemed quite unconcerned at the task Alexander had set him. He said he'd be delighted to accept the challenge. And you, Ian, will have to prove yourself in a contest of skill and stamina. If either of you fail, then you will die to appease my warriors, and the women will be left to fare for themselves. What contest am I to take part in? We are about to start Hephaestion's funeral games. You will participate in one of the events. To prove yourself, you must become champion. Oh, but that's not fair! Ian's not an athlete. He has the choice of ten events. Javelin, stone throwing, running, discus, wrestling, marathon, jumping, chariot racing, fencing and archery. The doctor, Susan and Barbara looked anxiously at Ian as he considered which event to take part in. Antipater and Sir Lucas sniggered softly to themselves. It was obvious they thought Ian was no match for the finest athletes in Alexander's army. Finally, Ian made his decision. Very well. I choose wrestling. <laughs> Sir Lucas roared with laughter at Ian's choice, but was immediately silenced by an angry look from Alexander, who then turned back to Ian. Are you sure that is a wise choice, Ian? Most of my warriors are very good wrestlers, and some are twice as tall and twice as heavy as you are. I'll stick to wrestling. Then I admire your courage. Choose something else, like running or jumping. Give yourself a chance. No, I'll compete in the wrestling. Then may the gods be on your side, for you will surely need their help. The doctor's party had been returned to their dungeons while the funeral games were being prepared. This time, however, they had not been shackled to the walls, and fresh food, water and wine had been brought to them by Alexander's servants. Ian, Susan and Barbara were discussing the forthcoming games and how unfair it was that Ian should be tested in such a way, while the doctor sat a little way off from them, thinking. Suddenly, he gave a little cry of delight and clapped his hands together. You know, I do believe I've got it. Got what, Grandfather? Who the real culprits are in all this? First of all, there's Arikusa, he said. Antipater? The doctor nodded. And then there's that prophet fellow Alexander got rid of. And that second-hand witch doctor. And possibly Sir Lucas. He's always hanging around with them. I don't think I follow you, Doctor. It's all quite simple, the doctor told him. Iris had pushed Clytus onto Alexander's spear. Hadn't he told them that from the very beginning? But we thought it was an accident. No! It had all been deliberate, just as the deaths of Calanus and Hephaestion had been. Ian shook his head, not quite believing. What evidence did the doctor have, he asked. Well, don't forget, my boy, I treated Calanus. He died of anthrax poisoning. And you don't get that from sitting down. You get it from animals or from infected earth. If Calanus had contracted it in an ordinary way, then there should have been other instances in the camp. And had there been? asked Ian. No, the doctor said. He checked. And there was one more thing to consider. Had any of them noticed a small rash around a tiny scratch on Kalana's right index finger. That had been how the poison had been administered, he said. 
But by whom? And how? And why didn't Calanus himself realize he was being poisoned? The doctor shrugged his shoulders. Perhaps they would never know, he said, and changed the subject. And then there's that young friend of Alexander's playing with asps at his age. You mean somebody planted it on him? But who? Iolus and Antipater seem the likeliest candidates, the doctor said. You're not just accusing Antipater because he accused us, are you? Of course not, the doctor said, affronted. He'd never been one to bear a grudge, he said. Not altogether convincingly. On the other hand, why accuse us if not to put the blame on someone else? And Hephaestion, do you remember? He kept saying, tell Alexander, tell Alexander. And we didn't know what to make of it. Yes, I remember. Well, he must have been running away from them. Otherwise, why did Antipater, Seleucus and Iolus suddenly appear? I believe you're right, Doctor. Hephaestion was trying to warn Alexander. Barbara remembered the conversation she'd had with Hephaestion on the evening of Calanus's death. He'd told her it was the year of the 114th Olympiad. 323 BC in their time. I've just realized what Hephaestion's warning was, she said. What? It is now Alexander's time to die. Hephaestion. Who would have thought that Alexander would outlive you? Hear them, Hephaestion! Hear the trumpets! Today the cream of our manhood will be fighting for your laurels. Alexander got up unsteadily from his throne, knocking over his cup in the process. It was the morning of the following day, and Alexander had been trying to blot out the memory of Hephaestion's death. He was about to pick up the cup, when Ptolemy entered the throne room. Faithful Ptolemy! At least the gods have spared you. Ptolemy was carrying a long, distinctively curved sword and handed it to Alexander. It is a Feistian sword. There is blood on the blade. Whose blood? The body of Glaucius had been discovered in a deserted hut on the edge of the hanging gardens, Ptolemy said. It seemed reasonable to assume that the blood was his. Killed by Hephaestion. Glaucus's wound corresponds to the blade of Hephaestion's sword, Ptolemy confirmed, and reminded the king that its curved blade was unique in the camp. But why would Hephaestion kill Glaucius? Ptolemy did not know. However, the sword had been found among the bushes in the gardens, the trampled plants there suggested that the Faustian had been running away from the hut after having killed Glaucius. Then he must have already been dying. Otherwise he would never have parted company with his sword. Which means that the strangers are innocent. Ptolemy took two other items from out of his tunic and handed them to Alexander. They had been found in the deserted hut, he told him. Hephaestion's medallion of succession. And Antipater's buckle, see, it has his insignia. It must have been torn off in a fight. Would the king now punish the strangers? Ptolemy asked. Alexander shook his head. I will not kill them. 
I was not going to anyway, for I suspected their innocence. But they must go through their tests to satisfy my warriors. Take good care of these, Ptolemy. For when the funeral games are over, vengeance shall strike this camp like a typhoon. I swear it! Never before in the history of Babylon had so many people gathered together to celebrate the funeral games. Not just Alexander's warriors, but all the citizens of the great city had come to the arena to celebrate the life and death of Hephaestion. At the edge of the arena, athletes stripped to the waist awaited their call and the chance to win the victor's laurel crown. In the centre of the arena, a strip of smouldering earth about five metres long, had been prepared. It had been covered with burning logs, which were already decomposing into ash. Ptolemy poked the ashes with a stick, and they glowed bright and red-hot. Soldiers escorted the doctor, Ian, Susan and Barbara into the arena. Ian was wearing a wrestling tunic, and the doctor had removed his shoes and socks. Watching all this on his throne was Alexander attended on either side by Antipater and Seleucus. He was perspiring heavily. Alexander held out his cup. Antipater took it and covertly added another lot of powder into the drink before refilling it and returning it to the king. That was the last of the poison, Antipater whispered to Seleucus. Soon Alexander would be dead, and Seleucus would be able to call himself king. What are you whispering, Antipater? They were merely talking about the old man, Antipater said, and pointed down at the doctor in the arena. Do not underestimate the old man, Antipater. Down in the arena, the doctor was rubbing his feet back and forth on the ground. His companions looked on in concern, but there was a broad grin on his face. It was almost as if he were looking forward to his coming ordeal. How are you going to walk over the fire, Grandfather? The doctor continued, shuffling his bare feet. Perhaps they could plead with Alexander, Barbara suggested. Perhaps they could make him change his mind. Nonsense, Miss Wright. That would be cowardly. Besides, I'm looking forward to it, he said with a twinkle in his eye. Looking forward to it? But won't you burn yourself? Burn? Burn? My dear boy, it will be like paddling in the sea. The doctor laughed. Ptolemy, satisfied that all was ready, signalled to Alexander that the doctor's trial by fire might begin. Alexander summoned the doctor over to his throne. Was he prepared for his ordeal, he asked him. Of course I'm ready, young man, the doctor replied impatiently and continued to rub his bare feet on the ground. Very well. May the gods be with you. Take care, Grandfather. Good luck, Doctor. A hush descended upon the crowd as the Doctor strode confidently towards the strip of red-hot ash. He circled the patch of burning ground three times, shuffling his feet as he did so. Ian, Susan and Barbara watched as the Doctor paused at the edge of the strip wondering why he was taking so much time. His eyes were closed now in deep concentration, but he continued to move his feet back and forth on the same spot. 
The doctor opened his eyes and grinned at his audience. Here we go, then, he cried out. And then, in his bare feet, he strolled down the path of burning ashes as casually as he might take an afternoon stroll. The crowd gasped and cheered when he reached the other side, from where he gave the spectators a jaunty wave. And then he shuffled his feet a little bit more and walked back the way he had come, to even more applause. By now the doctor was enormously pleased with himself. He retraced his steps across the burning ashes again and again, and finally gave an elaborate bow to the cheering crowds before approaching Alexander. Is that enough for you, young man? Or do you want me to do it all over again for you, hmm? He asked. You have already been over-enthusiastic, Reverend Old Man. You have passed the test of truth! Alexander dismissed the doctor, who rejoined Ian, Susan and Barbara. You did it, Grandfather! You did it! How on earth did you do it, Doctor? It was all very simple, he told them. All he had to do was let his feet perspire. That was why he was shuffling his feet all the time. Barbara realised, but Susan still didn't understand. By making his feet perspire, he created a layer of moisture which acted like a shield. So the fire acted on the moisture, but not on the skin. Isn't that right, Doctor? It was a neat little trick, the Doctor agreed. One that had been taught to him by a Polynesian king a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why we're all laughing when Ian has to go into the arena. Oh, stop worrying about me, Susan. I'll be all right. Sir Lucas left to join the athletes in the arena as Alexander called Ian to his side. Ian, the wrestling is about to commence. For the last time, I ask you to reconsider your decision. You may, if you wish, choose another event. No, thank you. I'll stick to wrestling. Very well. You know your task. You must beat all the others and win the laurel crown. Alexander called for the contestants to come forward, and the arena started to fill up with twenty or so muscular athletes dressed in the same wrestling robes that Ian was wearing. Ian joined the contestants in the arena, and Alexander ordered them to divide into two groups. Ian was assigned to one group, but was unaware that Sir Lucas had formed part of the opposing team. Alexander acknowledged the athletes, and they cheered their king. You all know the rules, but I shall repeat them for the benefit of the stranger. Both groups are equally divided, and both groups must wrestle between themselves to produce a finalist. Then the two finalists must fight for the laurel crown. You can only wrestle with one man at a time. You are not allowed to punch, bite, strangle, or kick. If your chest, your shoulders, or your back touch the ground, then you are eliminated. Do you understand the rules? And may the gods aid you, Ian. Contestants, you will start when I drop my arm. Let your muscles taste every drop of strength in your body. And wrestle with honor. For this commemorates the spirit of our noble Hephaestion. Alexander lowered his arm 
and the games began. A roar went from the arena as the wrestlers started to circle each other, sizing up the strength of the other side and picking their individual opponents. Ian paired up with a small, muscular Greek. No sooner had their bodies touched than Ian had thrown him effortlessly over his shoulder, sending him crashing down to the ground and out of the game. Well done, Ian! Well done! And now the next one. Ian had no time to rest. Another wrestler, twice his size, came running head first towards him. Ian stepped aside and caught him as he charged past. He lifted him by the waist before pushing him down to the ground. To the crowd's cheers, Ian's opponent stood up and shook his hand before leaving the arena. He's going to win! I told you he's going to win! Barbara watched on, her fists clenched, as Ian threw over yet another opponent. The doctor cheered, enjoying every moment of the contest, as Ian brought down yet another far stronger opponent. Alexander turned to Antipater. This is what I would call scientific wrestling, Antipater. Observe how the stranger uses his body like a complex mechanism of pulleys. He reminds me of the legendary Theseus. He'd seen better wrestlers, Antipater said begrudgingly. And Ian still hadn't won, he remarked. He will, if there is justice in the heavens. And if not, I'll have to spare his life. That would be going back on his word, Antipater said. It is the king's first duty to see justice done. He invites with courage and nobility. To kill him would be a waste of a good life. May I remind you, sire, that he and his friends are responsible for the deaths of your friends. It is your word against theirs, Antipater. Wrestling is my favorite sport, Antipater. Out there in the arena, there is nowhere to run. Nothing to hide behind. Under such conditions, a man reveals his true self. And when a man fights with such brilliance against overwhelming odds, he cannot be evil. I would take his words every time. Then you would be at fault, replied Antipater. How would you know, Antipater? You have never proved yourself in battle or in an athletic contest. Politics is your arena. You are bound to be a bad judge of character. Now be silent and watch the wrestling. Down in the arena, there were only two left from Ian's group. Ian and a tall, muscular Nubian. To the cheers of the crowd, Ian had the Nubian held in a chest lock. Using his weight to his advantage, Ian pressed him down onto the sand. The Nubian struggled to break free. But his brute force was no match for Ian's skill. Finally, his resistance broke, and he collapsed down onto the ground. The crowd cheered as the Nubian stood up and shook Ian by the hand and acknowledged him as the victor. Ian had achieved what had appeared to be impossible and defeated all his fellow contestants in his group. But there was one more challenge before he could receive the laurel crown. He had to defeat the winner of the other team. Now, Sir Lucas faced Ian. There was a vicious and murderous smile on the conspirator's face as he growled at Ian. This is where you get your neck broken, stranger. Nikita Seleucus 
challenges you to a fight to the death. and Seleucus circled each other like two wild animals, trying to get a vantage position. Come on, stranger. Attack! Or has your courage deserted you? Seleucus snarled. Ian crouched down, ready to jump Seleucus. But the burly Greek was too quick for him. With a roar, he charged at Ian, who sidestepped him and attempted to grab him by the shoulders. Seleucus easily shrugged Ian off turned round and prepared to lunge again. Come on, Ian! Get him! Alexander was watching the contest with interest. He turned to Antipater and asked him who he thought the winner would be. When Antipater declared that Sir Lucas was bound to be the victor, Alexander smiled knowingly. Would you like the stranger dead, Antipater? You already know my views on that, sire, he replied. Yes. But then you would like a great many people dead. You're a very bloodthirsty man, Antipater. Now watch the wrestler. You might learn a few things about how man meets adversity and conquers it. Without intrigue and without treachery. And just by being a man. Is there any hidden meaning in your words, sire? Antipater asked. Watch the wrestling, Antipater. Watch the wrestling. Sir Lucas now had the advantage over here. They were both seated in the dust of the arena, and the Greek had his mighty legs locked tightly around Ian's waist. He pulled Ian's head back, and the schoolteacher cried out, ignoring the pain. Ian reached out and grabbed hold of Sir Lucas's ankle. Summoning up all his remaining strength, he twisted it hard. Sir Lucas howled out and released his hold. Ian leapt up and turned to face Sir Lucas, who was already stumbling to his feet. Come on, Ian! Knock him out! I will kill you for that, stranger! I will break your bones into sand, Sir Lucas growled. Don't lose your head, Sir Lucas, or you'll lose the fight. Sir Lucas charged again at Ian, who, at the very last moment, turned sideways and crouched, forcing Sir Lucas's stomach to take the full impact of his shoulders. Winded, Sir Lucas staggered backwards. Ian took immediate advantage and grabbed Sir Lucas's arm and turned the Greek around. Before he could fight back, Ian cut his legs from under him and slammed the giant down on the floor. Ian sat on top of him, pinning his shoulders to the ground. A cheer rose up from the crowd. As Ian released the defeated Sir Lucas, 
and unsteadily got to his feet. He's done it! Ian's done it! The defeated Sir Lucas got up, and Ian offered him his hand to shake. Sir Lucas pushed it away in contempt. You humiliated me, stranger, and for that you will die, he promised. The jeers and boos from the crowd, Sir Lucas spat on the ground and walked away from Ian. Ptolemy came up and raised Ian's arm high in the air. To tumultuous cheers, Ian allowed Ptolemy to take him to where Alexander, the Doctor, Susan and Barbara were now waiting for him. The other wrestlers had also assembled there, and all of them joined in the applause. All that was apart from Sir Lucas, who glared balefully at Ian. Alexander left his throne and approached Ian. His steps were shaky, and there was a thin sheen of sweat on his brow. In his hand, he held a crown of laurels, which he placed on Ian's head, before declaiming his victory to the cheering crowds. Ian, I declare you Hephaestion's champion. The crowd cheered, and Alexander embraced his new champion. Antipater looked on with deep and bitter displeasure. You have made yourself dearer to me, my friend. Forgive me that I ever doubted your innocence. Warriors of Greece, companions, acknowledge our champion. Treat him like a brother, for he has brought a smile onto the ashen soul of our beloved Hephaestion. Away from the main crowd, Antipater mocked Sir Lucas, who was taking his defeat with bad grace. You realize, of course, that we can no longer use the strangers as scapegoats. We have lost a political advantage, he told him. Sir Lucas shrugged. Well, that doesn't matter. We do not need them anymore. Alexander will soon die, and I will be king and kill them all, he said. Antipater regarded Sir Lucas thoughtfully. You have become very confident, Sir Lucas. You haven't by any chance been opening your mouth about the plots, have you? He asked. Sir Lucas shook his head. Did Antipater take him for a fool, he asked. Alexander has been making some nasty insinuations. Are you sure you said nothing that might put him on my track? He continued, Of course not, Sir Lucas said angrily, and then frowned. Did Antipater think that Alexander suspected him? He suspected something, Antipater replied, and then added, I do hope you did nothing rash, for remember, Sir Lucas, if I am compromised, then so are you. Back in the arena, Alexander and his Greeks were still celebrating Ian's victory with the Doctor Susan and Barbara. I hope you will postpone your journey until tomorrow and allow me to be your host for one last time. Why not, Alexander? We'd be delighted. Oh, yes, let's stay. Can we stay, Grandfather? No, said Barbara. They had to leave today, she insisted. 
Now, another day or two wouldn't hurt, the doctor said. Yes, he told Alexander. They would stay a little longer. Good! And then you can meet my wife, Roxanne. She is only a day's journey away. Warriors and companions, tonight we celebrate my friend's victory. You are all guests of Alexander. As the soldiers and athletes started to move off, Alexander instructed Ptolemy to gather together all of his generals and advisers in the throne room. After they'd gone, Alexander put a comradely hand on the doctor's shoulder. Now, reverend old man, come and tell me the secret of your firewalking. I'm a good judge of character, doctor, and I am prepared to wager that you would not have walked the fire had you not had a secret up your sleeve. Now, am I not right? <laughs> the doctor and Ian both started chuckling and Alexander led them out of the arena, with Susan and Barbara following. Suddenly, Alexander's legs buckled underneath him, and he collapsed. Ian grabbed hold of him before he fell. Are you all right? Yeah. Yes, I think so. <laughs> Too much wine, I think. Barbara felt Alexander's forehead. It was hot to the touch. Wine always brings forth a man's fire, fair lady. <laughs> Come, let us go. Refusing either the doctor or Ian's support, Alexander led the way out. Barbara stayed back for a moment and shook her head. It's not the wine, Susan. It's not the wine, she said with dreadful certainty. What else could it be? He's dying, Susan. Alexander the Great is dying. Some hours later, Alexander's generals had all gathered in the throne room on the king's orders. Included in their number were Antipater and Seleucus, who stood directly before Alexander seated on his throne. Behind the throne, as watchful as ever, was the faithful Ptolemy. Alexander took another sip from the cup by his side. In the past hour, his condition had worsened and his body was bathed in sweat. He surveyed the crowd before him and satisfied that all were present, addressed the assembled company. You all know that the strangers have been accused of treachery and that they have proved their innocence by trial. I am satisfied of their innocence. But I do not base this opinion on the results of the trial, but as a result of additional clues that have come to my attention. These clues are vitally important, for they make it clear that there has been treachery in Alexander's camp. Treachery that has taken Hephaestion's beautiful life, and perhaps even that of Calanus and Clytus. Antipater and Seleucus exchanged anxious looks, something which did not go unnoticed by either Alexander or the ever-watchful Ptolemy. Alexander took another sip of wine and continued. I know that Clytus died on my spear, but there is a suggestion he may have been pushed. In any case, this meeting will discover the truth. Alexander made a signal to Ptolemy and the Nubian general left his master's side and walked over to a small chest from which he pulled out something wrapped in the folds of a cloak. As Ptolemy did so, 
Alexander examined the faces of each of his generals for any tell-tale reactions. His eyes fell on Antipater, who bowed his head, unwilling to meet the gaze of his king. Ptolemy brought the cloak and laid it down on a table directly before the throne. Alexander instructed him to display the evidence it concealed. Wrapped inside the cloak were Hephaestion's blood-stained sword, his crushed medallion of succession, and Antipater's buckle. Antipater gasped when he saw his buckle displayed before him. Seleucus's hand instinctively went to his sword. Alexander called for silence, and keeping his eyes fixed firmly on Antipater, addressed his generals again. Generals! You have before you Hephaestion's sword, stained with the blood of Glaucius, whom we can prove he killed. You also have his medallion of succession, crushed. And finally, you have Antipater's buckle, severed from his tunic by some force. All eyes turned to Antipater. Antipater started to protest, but Alexander silenced him. He would be able to defend himself later, he said. The king turned back to the generals. You all know that I had named Hephaestion, Calanus, and Clytus in that order to succeed me in case of my death. And to make this decision known to the whole camp, I had charged Antipater to order the armorer to mold the appropriate medallions of succession. Alexander reached out and picked up Hephaestion's medallion. The crushed one is that of Hephaestion. I have not seen those of Calanus and Clytus, Unless Antipater has still got them. Now, my friend, within a very short space of time, Clytus, Calanus, and Hephaestion have died. And if I die today, then the throne has no successor. Therefore, I have come to the conclusion that the treachery was directed against the throne. We must know... Why? And then we must punish the traitor or traitors. And finally, we must converse to appoint new successors to the throne. The generals all murmured their agreement, and Alexander then addressed Antipater directly. And now, Antipater, start explaining. Tell us why Hephaestion had to kill Glaucius. Tell us why his medallion of succession, which was in your care, came to be defiled so. And finally, tell us how your buckle came to be torn at the very scene where Glaucius met his death at the hands of Hephaestion. And make sure that your arguments carry some weight. The mood of the generals was becoming angry as they demanded an explanation from Antipater. Antipater looked around wild-eyed and frightened, desperately trying to think of an alibi. He looked for help from Seleucus. Who unsheathed his sword and rushed forward. Traitor, I for one will not stand and listen to your lies, he cried out. Ptolemy ran out from behind the throne to try and stop Seleucus. But it was too late. Seleucus drove his sword through Antipater, who fell to the floor. Furious that blood had been spilt in the throne room, Alexander got up off his throne and collapsed, unnoticed by the generals who gathered around Seleucus and Antipater's body. Ptolemy relieved Seleucus of his sword. Seleucus was a fool, Ptolemy said, 
Now they would never know if Antipater had any accomplices or not. Sir Lucas looked down at Antipater and smirked. I could not let a traitor live, he said. Suddenly, Ptolemy spotted the fallen figure of Alexander at the base of the throne. He ran over and knelt by him. Too much wine, Ptolemy. Alexander fell unconscious, and Ptolemy turned to the general nearest to him and barked out an order. Atalus, move the king to his chambers. I will get help. A deathly silence hung over the throne room as Alexander's generals awaited word of his health. It had been over an hour since the doctor had been summoned to the king's bedside, and since then there had been no news. Some of the generals were weeping openly, others paced up and down the throne room, casting anxious glances at the door leading to Alexander's quarters, hoping for any sign that the king would recover from the mysterious fever which had befallen him. Only Seleucus seemed unconcerned. In a corner of the room, Ian, Susan and Barbara were also awaiting the news. Of them all, Barbara was by far the most distraught. I was hoping we would have been spared this, she said. Are you sure there's no chance for Alexander? There wasn't, said Barbara. We are in Babylon in the year 323 BC, and I've asked Atalus, one of the generals, what the date is. It is the 30th day of the Greek month Decius, or June the 13th. Alexander the Great will die before the day is over. But don't be too sure. The doctor's in there with him. He might be able to cure him. Grandfather can't change history. Nobody wants him to change history. If in history Alexander dies today, then there's nothing anybody can do. I don't think he's dying today. Barbara, you must have got your dates mixed. He's a bit merry, that's all. Probably alcoholic poisoning or something. I'm sure the doctor will think of a way. I haven't got my dates mixed up, Ian, Barbara said firmly. Don't you understand, Ian? It's impossible, even for Grandfather, to change history. Why? Because history protects itself. What is destined always happens. You can no more change the past than you can change the future. Nonsense. It's true, Ian. Believe me. Look, Barbara says according to history, Alexander died today. Very well. Suppose his illness is no more serious than alcoholic poisoning, and the doctor can cure him. What can prevent Alexander from living? Something will. Something always does. It's a safety device of history. It never allows itself to be changed. Well, there's always a first time. Ian turned, unwilling to listen to Susan. But Barbara believed her. Oh, come on, Barbara. Be sensible. But I am being sensible. History is something that is continuous. The future is a direct result of the past. If you change the past, then you jeopardize the course of the future, she said. Then think of this, Barbara. If Alexander is permitted to live a full life, then you can have a world united from 300 BC onwards. No, said Barbara. Couldn't he see? Alexander did not live a full life, Ian. He wasn't meant to live a full life, she reminded him. Before Ian could reply, the door leading to Alexander's chamber opened and Ptolemy came over to them. 
The doctor wanted to see them right away, he said. How is Alexander? He was resting, Ptolemy told him. See? What did I tell you? Now come along. Ptolemy brought them to Alexander's chamber, where the king was stretched out on a long bed. The doctor was sitting by him, checking his pulse and occasionally mopping his brow. Alexander was resting, but still feverish, and was slipping in and out of consciousness. The doctor stood up when his friends entered, checked Alexander's pulse one last time, and then went over to join them. There was something he wanted Ian to do for him, he said. Would you know how to build an iron lung? You do know what it is, don't you? Hmm? You are a science teacher after all, he said. Well, yes, I... I know what one is, but not in great detail. It works on the principle of a bellows. Build a chamber out of anything you like and make it operational by hand or by any other mechanism you can devise. But make sure that the inside of the chamber maintains a lower pressure than the outside, the doctor told him. I don't quite understand, doctor. I have to keep his lungs functioning. The lower pressure inside the chamber will inflate and collapse the lungs. Do you understand? he asked. Yes, but I'll need some help. Ptolemy told Ian he could have as much assistance as he wanted if it would save Alexander's life. He called Atalus in and ordered him to put the entire camp at Ian's disposal. When Ian and Ptolemy had gone, the doctor returned to Alexander's side where he was joined by Susan and Barbara. What's wrong with him, Grandfather? I don't quite know, child. It looks like pneumonia. And yet there are other symptoms too, just as if he'd been poisoned as well. But whatever it is, it's attacking his lungs, the doctor said and dipped his handkerchief into a bowl of water before bringing it out and placing it on Alexander's forehead. Did Alexander have a fever? Barbara asked. The doctor placed her hand on Alexander's brow. Feel it, Miss Wright. He's burning. Well, that was it, Barbara said. Alexander the Great was dying. Not if I can help it, said the doctor. No, Grandfather. What Barbara means is that Alexander dies today, according to history. Nonsense. Wait a minute. According to history, he asked, as the full weight of Susan's words hit him. Barbara nodded. Will you still try and help him, Grandfather? And change history, added Barbara. The doctor seemed uncertain how to reply. He shook his head and then looked back at Alexander, lying unconscious on the bed. The mighty king of the Macedons now seemed as helpless as a newborn child. Finally, he took a deep breath and made his decision. I'll probably fail, Miss Wright. In normal circumstances, I'd refrain from attempting to change history. But he is an ill man. And it is the duty of every decent human being to look after the sick, he said. The doctor took off his jacket, handed it to Susan, and started to roll up his shirt sleeves. You see, Miss Wright, a long time ago when I was young and before I specialized in science, I was a medical student. I gave it up after about two years, but I did take the Hippocratic Oath 
to help the sick, no matter who, no matter where, and no matter under what conditions. Barbara smiled and laid a grateful hand on the doctor's hand. Now come along then. I might need your help here. Some little while later, Alexander was sleeping peacefully after the doctor had administered some herbs and potions. When he awoke, Ptolemy, the doctor, Susan and Barbara were looking down at him in concern. He smiled, a weak smile. I am lucky to have so many friends by my deathbed. I shall join my ancestors in bliss. The stranger will save you, sire, Ptolemy promised. Alexander looked searchingly at the doctor. Is this true? The doctor said that all that he could promise was that he would try. Mortals can do nothing more than try, doctor. But how will you save me? Already I feel my life draining away. It was his lungs that were affected, the doctor informed him. And Ian was building a machine that would keep them working. It should be ready soon. Alexander tried to sit up, and Barbara propped up a pillow at his back. I would like to live, Reverend Old Man. Not because I am attached to life, for I am not. The pleasures of this world have long since deserted me. But you see, I have a dream. A good dream. A lot of people have mocked it including my teacher Aristotle, the so-called wise man. They mock it by calling it the marriage of the East and West. But who cares what they call it? It is as good a name as any for such a beautiful dream. You see, I left Macedon just about 13 years ago to pursue this tree. I took with me 25,000 men and 5,000 cavalry. What the world has come to know as Alexander's army. Efficient in battle. Brave as if every single man had the blood of Hercules in him. Not an army of ruffians, but an army who had glimpses of my dream and had agreed to create the space for that dream to come true. But in addition to these brave men, another army left Macedon with me. A subtler, passionately dedicated army which set about to make the dream come true. An army of scientists, geographers, astronomers, armed not with swords, with intellect. And in as short a time as 13 years, Alexander and his two armies cured the world of half its multitude of fighting blisters, shaped its geography, and bestowed brotherhood to Greek and to Persian, to Indian and Mongol, to Nubian and Semite. In 13 years, Alexander and his two armies taught themselves and the world how to absorb the best of two civilizations, both by mixing the blood of different races 
and by exchanging customs and beliefs. And today there is a brotherhood of nations, linked by love, culture, and commerce. This is my dream, which is coming true. But it is still suffering its birth pangs. And there is the rest of the world that still has to dream this dream. And for that, Alexander must be alive. Ptolemy mopped his master's brow. Alexander would live to see his dream, he promised him. I hope so, Ptolemy. Oh, it would be a great pity if the dream were to be killed in its infancy. It's a beautiful dream. But a dream not worthy of humanity, Barbara said sadly. Alexander looked curiously at her. Her lady, why do you say that? Barbara sighed. Because men like you, men of genius, visionaries and godlike men, have dreamed the same dream time and time again. But their voices were heard for brief moments, and their dreams died the glorious death of a burning star. Man does not want to know about brotherhood, Alexander. Man is greedy. He wants to be able to touch and feel his exploits. He wants to taste, literally, his successes. And a concept like brotherhood is ephemeral. You cannot eat it nor buy anything with it. It has no use for man. You talk as if you have seen the future. Have you seen the future? Barbara turned away and didn't answer. Alexander looked to the doctor. Can she read the future? The doctor too refused to answer. So Alexander asked Susan the same question. Your hesitation is my answer. I do not believe in foresight, Barbara. But you and your friends, with your exchange transfusions and breathing machines, you are not like us. Perhaps you come from another civilization, beyond the territories that I have ventured to. Or perhaps you are gods, temporarily on Earth. So despite myself, I believe your words. Do you know for certainty that my dream is impossible? Answer me. Still, Barbara wouldn't answer. <sighs> then you, reverend old man, tell me. And please be truthful. The doctor took a deep breath before answering. Very well, young man. We are travellers from another time, and Barbara is right. Man achieves unity 3,000 years from now, and that only because they were on the verge of exterminating each other. Thank you for being truthful. Suddenly they heard the sound of shouting from outside. Ptolemy rushed out of the chamber to see the cause of the disturbance. Sir Lucas was standing in the way of Ian, Atalus, and two other soldiers who had just arrived in the throne room. 
Between them, they were carrying an iron lung, constructed from shields and pulleys. Sir Lucas glared menacingly at Ian, and his hand went to the hilt of his sword. You will not use this evil contraption on our king, he said. Out of my way, Sir Lucas. Sir Lucas drew his sword and advanced on Ian with a murderous look in his eyes. Ptolemy knocked the sword out of his hand. If there is any further interruption from you, Sir Lucas, then I shall crush your skull, the Nubian warned, and commanded Ian and the others to carry the machine into Alexander's room. Following Ian's instructions, Talus and the soldiers set up the iron lung and moved it alongside Alexander's bed as Ian explained its operation to the doctor. I, I thought of a combustion engine, but I couldn't build it in so short a time. These pulleys here operate a pump, and that should decrease the pressure. Shall we try it? The doctor called Ptolemy over and asked him to help Ian lift Alexander and place him in the iron lung. Alexander, who had been watching the setting up of the machine in a subdued and thoughtful silence, raised a shaking hand. No. What do you mean, no? I will not be treated. But this can save your life. I want to die. I have decided. The doctor, Ian, Susan and Barbara couldn't believe what they were hearing. Surely he didn't mean that, they asked. I told you before I had only my dream to live for. Now I understand. It was a good dream. But it was a futile dream. Pursuing it, I have shed blood all over the world. If I live, I will continue to do so. And I do not want to shed any more blood. But you must live. Must. Must! When there is no longer anything or anyone to live for? No! Yes! I remember my friend Kalanus telling me that a man must die when death becomes more attractive than life. I now know what he meant. For it is time for me to join my friends and ancestors in the domain of the unknown. The doctor walked up to Alexander's bedside. He had heard enough nonsense, he said, sternly, and he would cure the king whether he liked it or not. Alexander ignored the doctor and called Ptolemy over. Ptolemy! You have been a faithful friend throughout my life. You will do me one last service. You will make sure that the doctor is not permitted to treat me. Ptolemy started to protest, but Alexander cut him short. That is an order as well as a last wish. Will you refuse me, Ptolemy? Of course he'll refuse, the doctor said. But Ptolemy shook his head. He could not refuse his king, he said. He could not refuse his friend. Alexander pointed to the iron lung. Then break that machine right now. Break it in front of my eyes. Ptolemy unsheathed his sword and walked towards the iron lung. Ian stepped in front of the machine, but the Nubian pushed him aside. He raised his sword and brought it crashing down one, two, three, four times onto the machine until it was destroyed and lay in pieces on the ground. 
Thank you. Now, I want to see my warriors. It was night now, and Alexander's generals had assembled into the throne room to say farewell. Torches were lit, casting grotesque shadows on the wall, and the smell of incense hung heavy in the air. In a corner, a holy man sat, half chanting a prayer to the gods. Alexander's generals filed past where the king lay on a simple bier, attended on each side by Ptolemy and Seleucus. The doctor's party stood a little way off, unwilling to intrude on their grief. Susan and Barbara were crying. As each general passed to kneel down and kiss his hand, Alexander raised his head, recognising each individual and calling him by his name. Farewell, Demetrius. Farewell, Idomenus. Take good care of that old wound. Farewell, Theocritus. When you reach Macedon, plant an olive tree for me. I bid you farewell, my fellow warriors. Suddenly there was a disturbance, and a young woman, escorted by two soldiers, entered the throne room. She was dark-skinned, dressed in exotic eastern robes, and was heavily pregnant. The newcomer quickly took in the scene and rushed over to Alexander's side. The king looked up not sure if he was dreaming, and gently touched the woman's cheek. Roxanne? Faithful Roxanne, you have come to see Alexander die. Will you leave me and your unborn child? Roxanne asked, trying to hold back her tears. Alexander's spirit is broken, Roxanne. Physically and mentally, it is impossible for Alexander to grab the reins of life. But who is to rule the world, Alexander? she asked. Alexander looked up at his wife, and then at Ptolemy, and then at Seleucus, and then at each of his generals in turn. Who is it, Alexander? Who is to succeed? The greatest Grecian of them all, Roxanne asked. The best man. Ptolemy stepped forwards and gently closed Alexander's eyes and then turned to the generals. Alexander now belonged to history, he announced in a voice quaking with emotion. But who had Alexander named as his successor, Talus wanted to know. The best man, Ptolemy told him. Seleucus pulled out his forged medallion of succession for everyone to see. He was to succeed Alexander, he said. Alexander named me as successor. This is my proof. And besides, I am the best man. And I declare myself king after Alexander, he told the generals. What made him the best man to succeed Alexander? One of the generals asked. Another said that he had as much right to the throne as Seleucus, or as Atullus, or as any of the others there. Soon the generals were quarrelling among themselves so much they didn't notice Ptolemy start to usher the doctor, Ian, Susan and Barbara out of the throne room. 
Susan glanced over at Roxanne, who was kneeling by the dead Alexander's side, ignoring the petty arguments around her. What about his wife? We can't just leave her like that. She is where she belongs, by her husband's side, Ptolemy replied, and pushed them towards the door. There's nothing more we can do, Susan. Come on, let's follow Ptolemy, Barbara said, and took Susan's hand in hers. Roxanne watched the strangers leave, and then looked at the generals, squabbling over the succession, mere minutes after Alexander's death. She turned away in disgust, and then sighed and addressed her dead husband one last time. Alexander, you have left the world to the vultures. Ptolemy took the doctor, Ian, Susan and Barbara out of the palace, through a secluded alley and into the hanging gardens and the glade where the Tardis had brought them all those long weeks ago. They had to leave immediately, he said urgently. Sir Lucas had sworn vengeance on them and he might not be able to stop him. The doctor reached out and took Ptolemy's hand. Ptolemy bowed. It had been an honour to meet them, he said. You'd better watch out for that Sir Lucas character. For all we know, he might have conspired with Antipater, the doctor advised him. Ptolemy didn't doubt it. What other reason could Sir Lucas have had for killing Antipater, other than to hide his guilt, he asked. Well, you'd better watch him then. What will you do? First of all, he would try and stop the generals quarrelling, Ptolemy said. After that, he would return to Egypt and settle in Alexandria, which he described as one of Alexander's most beautiful creations. And there he would follow Alexander's example, he said. He would encourage science, encourage people to intermarry, and devote themselves to the idea of brotherhood. And if the gods were willing, he would build the largest library in the world, so that Alexandria would outshine even Athens. And all of this, he said, he would do in honour of Alexander. I wish you well, sir, the doctor said, and turned to unlock the TARDIS door. You will succeed, Ptolemy. You'll create the Ptolemy dynasty and cast the seeds of a glorious era, Barbara reassured him. Ptolemy saluted and bade them farewell. He had to go before there was bloodshed between the generals, he told them. Farewell, Ptolemy. Susan took one final look at the ancient wonder of the hanging gardens and then followed the others into the TARDIS. Inside the TARDIS, the Doctor adjusted controls on the console, guiding the TARDIS on its next journey through space and time. Barbara sighed. Just let's not see any more history for a while. It's too sad, she said. Look! Look at the scanner! The Doctor, Ian and Barbara looked up at the image Susan had called up on the TARDIS scanner screen. It was night on the great plain outside Babylon. Alexander's men were assembled in their thousands, row upon row as far as the eye could see, spears held aloft in honour of their departed king. At the head of them 
proud and respectful, stood Ptolemy and Roxanne. Before them, the flames licked higher and higher around the great Alexander's funeral pyre. It burned gloriously, illuminating the entire night sky, a beacon of legend to be seen for miles around. The end of Alexander the Great, not with a whimper, but with a bang. Farewell, Alexander. Farewell, great Macedon. 